Can you name a book? The Book of Lies. The book that's most changed my life. The books have nothing to say. The most correct of any book on earth. This book is fantastic. This book is going to, you know, scare people. This book is not a bedtime story. This book is out of control. Oh, truck drivers would love this book. You must burn the books, Montag. That's my second favorite book of all time. I'd like to bear my testimony. I know this book is true. You're listening to the Book of Darren. Welcome to the first episode of The Book of Darren. For those of you that don't know, Russell and I created a show called The Cooper Vortex. That was all about D.B. Cooper. We started that show because I wanted to hear long-form interviews with the people that were writing books about D.B. Cooper and arguing about it all day online. I love the podcast format. And I really love conducting an interview or being interviewed. I'm very proud of the Cooper Vortex, but D.B. Cooper isn't the only thing I'm interested in. If I'm ever going to escape from the Vortex, I need help. I need advice from someone that spent years researching, reading, interviewing, and podcasting about a decades-old unsolved American aviation mystery and is trying to move on from that. There can't be very many people in this position but I found one. Actually, that's a lie. He found me. Chris Williamson is the creator and host of Chasing Earhart and Vanished Podcast. He's got a doc and a book he's working on, too. He's a great guy, and if you aren't aware of him or his work, I'm proud to introduce you to my good friend, Chris Williamson. Do you consider yourself an expert on the subject of Amelia Earhart? Absolutely not. I would say no, not even close. Compared to the people that I've spoken with, uh, I'm not even in the ballpark. I'm I'm more of a more of a third party observer that happened to sort of get in bed, so to speak, with as many people as I could in the Earhart within the Earhart story, and uh, and just start asking questions. And and I think over time, people start throwing that 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 term around. And uh, I've always been sort of uncomfortable with it just because I, I, I've never felt that I've, I've, I'm an expert, you know, um, just, just not compared to the people that we deal with, you know, just really isn't in the same, in the same ballpark, really. How many people on this planet do you think can talk about the subject of Amelia Earhart for more than 60 minutes? There's, there's probably several hundred at least, uh, you know, people can talk about it. I guess it's, it's a, it's a question really of, of can they talk about it? Uh, you know, passionately, or can they, can they expertly speak on it? And I'm certainly in that first group where I can, I can talk about it passionately with anybody for hours and have, of course, certainly. But uh, I think it's probably a small group of people that can talk about it. Probably just a few hundred, maybe if I, if I had to guess off the top of my head. And most of those people have been part of one of our projects that we've done at some point. (laughs) So, all right. Just so I don't have to say her first and last name every time, I'm just going to say Amelia, if that's cool with you. I I prefer that. Yeah. Well, we'll know who we're talking about. Yeah. Tell me about the first time you heard about Amelia Earhart. Yeah, that's easy. I I was in third grade. I told the story a few times. We had a history day project, like most of us probably did in grade school. And our teacher, uh, Mrs. Fox, I'll never forget it. She put a bunch of these eight by tens around the room and you have, 
you know, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, uh, you know, you name it. There's, there's probably 30 or 40 of them, if I remember correctly, around the room. And there was a picture of Earhart and nobody had known really who she was, of course, at that age. Nobody really knew who she was. And I just, it was that, it's that famous photo. If you Google her right now, it's that famous photo of her with the bomber jacket on and she's got her hands on her hips and it's, it's a really great photo. And that was what it was. It was that picture. And I just, nobody had picked her and I decided to pick her. I don't have a reason why. I just kind of was drawn to it. And I did a third grade report, a third grade little, little book, not book report, but a little report on her. And I just, I found myself coming back and, and every, every year I'd come back and I'd do another piece on Earhart, like a, you know, and it just kind of, it kind of just went all the way from there. And it just kind of, it, the, the reports got more complex and this, the data got more interesting. And I just kind of started making more stuff. And that's where it started for me, third grade. So I'll never forget it. Wow. So you never put it down once you picked it up. Not really. Uh, she was always sort of on my radar. Uh, there, there was, there was definitely a gap of time where I, I didn't, uh, you know, for years, didn't really think about it or do too much with it. Or every time I'd see something on online or whatever in passing or a documentary would come out, of course, I'd, I'd watch it, you know, and I'd, I'd be interested in it, but I didn't really go hard on it until probably uh, 2009 or so, something like that, you know, 2010 is when I really started kind of getting into it and taking like notes privately. Nobody really knew about it. I just kind of did it on my own um, as a way to sort of unwind, believe it or not. It was like, it kind of became like a hobby at first. And I just kind of did it among the other things that I was doing for, for work and all that. So yeah, she never really left my consciousness. And then it just kind of became a real serious deal all of a sudden, kind of snowballed. What happened to Amelia Earhart? I have no idea. I'll be very honest with you. <laughs> I don't think anybody truly, well, let me, let me, let me, let me walk that back. I think every, everybody that's working a given theory on Earhart knows what happened to Earhart, you know, and I'm gonna put that in, you know, in air quotes, if we're doing video, you know, they, they know what happened to Earhart. Do we, do we have a finality of, of what happened to Earhart? We do not. Um, you know, this is, this is the 85th year. Uh, July 2nd will be 85 years to the day that her and Noonan disappear over the Pacific Ocean, apparently. And uh, just just shy of Howland Island, their, their intended destination, or, you know, depending on who you believe, it might not have been. But they're, they're trying to make this, uh, the fact of the matter remains, they're, they're trying to make this world flight. They're trying to complete it. They're on the, the toward, toward the very end of it, the last third. And uh, once they hit Howland, they, you know, they stop at Howland, they refuel and they go from Howland to Hawaii. So, I mean, they're almost there. They're like 90, 90% of the way there. And a, a bunch of things just go wrong. They lose, uh, they never make two-way communication with, there's a, there's a Coast Guard cutter, um, Atasca, a ship, the Atasca, that's sort of laying in wait off the coast of Howland Island, trying to get them to, trying to help guide them in. Uh, they're supposed to make radio contact with the Atasca. They never do. There's never... There was never any two-way radio communication made with the Itasca. And um, they basically vanish into thin air. There's no oil slick. There's no wreckage. There's nothing. They just, they, they, depending on who you believe, who you talk to, they, they basically fell shy, uh, fell short of Howland, just shy of Howland, like within 200 miles or under, depending on where, where you want to search. And that's, that's, that's the official U.S. government backed story. And that is what they say. If you were to ask somebody that was a representative of the U.S. government, they would say that that's what happened. Uh, but of course, there are varying theories on what happened to Amelia Earhart. And then it gets from, you know, the more plausible all the way down to the just really insane and out there, as you are probably well aware with D.B. Cooper. Oh, I'm well aware. What I'm really interested in with Amelia 
and I read this in an article that you were in, uh, I think it was a Newsweek article from like 2018 or something like that. Yeah, it might have been something like that. Yeah. In that article and on your show, you say almost all the theories can be boiled down into five different options. Right. Yeah. Would you mind just briefly going over those five? Yeah, of course. Uh, Option number one, we just sort of touched on it. She she was on the way to Howland and she ran out of fuel. They had a several several things potentially go wrong. The lack of two way radio communication, the idea that there was um, unanticipated headwinds uh, on that section of the of the flight and they burned more fuel than they anticipated burning. And they just sort of made a series of misjudgments and bad calls. And there was a lack of communication and they fell short. And that's where the plane lands, roughly 18,000 feet uh, below the surface of the ocean. That's where it lies right now, rather. And uh, that's that. Uh, There is several other theories. One, that she went to an island about 405 miles away from the uh, intended destination of Howland. It's an island called Nicomororo. It was originally called Gardner, but it was changed to Nicomororo, historically speaking. And uh, that theory is known as the castaway theory. It is uh, headed up by a group called, uh, but the acronym is, t- is T-I-G-H-A-R, TIGER, and it stands for the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery. They have been uh, heading up that investigation in, on that island for Nicomoro for many, many years now, and they believe that she may have landed there on the reef, put the plane down successfully, and sent out what uh, are a lot of people are are saying are post loss radio signals, which basically just means you know after the fact, uh, days after she was uh, landed the plane and days after she went down, days after July second, she was still on that island. Um, she was on that island for an indeterminate amount of time before she died as a castaway. We do not know what happened to Noonan in that scenario. That he, the idea seems to be that he might have had an injury on landing and maybe never made it out of the plane or died shortly after they landed. But essentially it was Earhart on her own on that island for days, weeks, months, maybe. We don't know. Uh, so that's Castaway. Uh, the third option is something uh, something known as Japanese capture. And that's a very big one. The whole idea is that she actually flew to the Marshall Islands. And this gets very um, shaky because it, it kind of veers multiple directions, dozens of directions, really. But the idea was that she was captured by the Japanese and she was held um, in Japanese custody for a period of time. And it sort of becomes like a choose your own adventure book. She either dies um, in a Garapan prison jail cell in in Saipan uh, of dysentery, or she actually uh, gets executed along with Noonan. Uh, There's a really particularly horrific ending for Noonan that he gets his head cut off in that particular scenario. And they, they get kicked in, into this shallow graves and these shallow grave sites and that they're still there. The remains are still there somewhere in Saipan. And this is based off of a lot of eyewitness testimony. There's over 200. It's a big number. Eyewitnesses throughout the Marshall Islands uh, and Saipan. And uh, these are witnesses that are go everything, they run the gamut everywhere from uh, locals, uh, natives to uh, some of the military that was stationed there after in World War II, during World War II. And all the way up to Admiral Chester Nimitz, who was the commanding officer of the fleet for uh, for the U.S. and World War II there. Um, so that's Japanese capture. The idea that she was, you know, under under duress, she was taken under duress there, and that she and Noonan died in, in custody. Uh, the the other ending to that is not so much that she died, uh, more so that she was repatriated, and that that sort of veers into something known as the Irene Bolum 
hypothesis, which is basically the idea here is that she was repatriated to the United States and that she lived out the rest of her days uh, and on the East Coast of the United States and she never flew again. And uh, this is um, a theory that was championed by a gentleman by the name of Joe Gervais, and he wrote a book, um, or there's a gentleman by the name of Joe Kloss who wrote a, who wrote a book based off of Ger Gervais's uh, uh, work and uh, has been championed by a gentleman by the name of Todd Swindell, who's actually completed a forensic um, uh, study on this whole thing and has actually come up with some really startling and incredible information. And I would encourage everybody to go check out his website uh, for that, protectingairheart.com. That's a really great website. And Todd Swindell's done some amazing work. So that's that's sort of the idea uh, behind that is that she was repatriated, that she knew she had the communication, she had the know-how, she had the connections, most importantly, to, uh, to potentially stage a repatriation event. Um, she knew everybody that she needed to know, including the president of the United States, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt who would have been instrumental in helping that, uh, ha helping that happen. So that's, that's Irene Bolum. And the, the fifth one that I, we have sort of been championing, championing um, and, and kind of helping out is something known as the Buka hypothesis, the Buka theory. And the Buka theory just really um, rests a lot on time, distance, and fuel. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Bill Snavely, who's been working on that theory for roughly 15 years or so. And he believes, he hypothesizes that they made it uh, roughly to the halfway point, and they determined that based off the fuel that they had already burned and based off of the unanticipated headwinds and some of the things that sort of crash and sink sort of leans on, they made an executive decision in, in flight to turn around because they realized that they wouldn't make Howland Island. And uh, they happened to be just past an area um, of the flight path that had never been searched. Uh, and it was an area just, just past the island of Buka. And basically what happened is there were storms. There was uh, a lot of um, really inclement weather at the time over Buka. And the idea is that they might've been struck by lightning. They might've been hit by a bolt of lightning basically. And that, that hit the left side of the plane. Plane gets hit. Uh, they drop below a thousand feet under the cloud cover to try to find a place to land. They see that there's a spot on Buka. Uh, they were actually trying to communicate with Buka potentially. That's what Bill Snavely theorizes. Instead of being um, over there in Howland, they were actually in Buka on a different frequency. They get struck by lightning. The plane crashes. There's a lone witness for this particular theory. It's a young kid who is on the beach uh, at Buka when this happens, and this plane comes out of the out of the <laughs> the heavens basically, and it's got its left side on fire, its left wing on fire, or engine on fire, I should say, and it ends up crashing off the banks of Buka Island, and it sits in roughly less than 150 feet of clear blue Pacific today. Um, unfortunately, right now it's it's been there. It's been in one of the most uh, difficult nautical environments on the face of the earth. And it, the actual airframe and the actual fuselage is, is essentially engulfed in coral. And it's in a very, very difficult place, uh, you know, on this planet to go and actually try to uh, determine if it's her plane or not, but they're working on it. And uh, it's, it's running slowly, but surely. So we'll hopefully have some news on Buka coming up, um, hopefully in the next couple of months. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of basically it. That's, that's five major theories. There are more, uh, but um, that's the sort of the, those are the sort of the five theories that Jen and I decided to sort of put on trial for Vanished. So these are the main theories. These are the main players. Um, and this is what we're going to sort of test hypothesis wise. And so those are those are the five main theories, essentially, as we see it. When I listened to Vanished, the one that's really stuck out to me where I had to go online and be <laughs> like, OK, I got to look more into this was Irene Bolin. Right. 
it, it just the idea that she comes back to the United States. Yeah. When she was one of the most famous people in the United States. Right. And then just slips back in. It wasn't like mm-hmm. there were a ton of famous people. Yeah. Uh, and she was the she was the most famous certainly the most famous woman on the planet. I mean, by a, I mean, by a mile, no, not even, there's no one that could even touch her at the time, maybe even the most famous person on the planet. So unlike Cooper, which is what really, what attracted me to Cooper is I think we say this in the show, he exists for just a handful of hours. There's no beginning and there's no ending. We don't really know. He, he, so for him, it would have been pretty easy, likely for him to slip back into anonymity and just sort of, you know, kind of just merge back into life. For her, this is one of the most famous women on the planet. Certainly, you know, her name is very famous. How famous is her face? Well, it's all over ads. I mean, she was a she was a major player at Purdue. She had just started that Purdue uh, relationship maybe about a year and a half prior to her disappearance. And she was on a lecture circuit. So she was, you know, she was lecturing everywhere, uh, doing all these these types of things. And so for her, it on, on the face of it, it seems like it might be really out there because how would this woman that was as famous as she was uh, just slip back into life essentially on in, in a major U.S. city and not be known by anybody. But uh, the people who have been championing that theory and people who have supported that theory for so long believe that people that knew her uh, intimately, close friends and family, some of them uh, knew that that Bolum was Earhart. Earhart was Bolum. It was they knew it. It was a known thing among those group of people. And uh, that basically Earhart, for all intents and purposes, did die, essentially. Uh, you know, that's why we named it Exit Amelia Earhart and then Enter Irene Bolum for the for the episode of the show. That's what it was called, is because it's basically you're you're swapping two people, um, essentially, even though it's the same person. And there's also sort of some flexibility there because there are some people that believe that, you know, there was a spy mission and that there was actually multiple planes and things of that nature. And that Bolum was flying one of them. Earhart was flying the other. Potentially, they might have both gotten captured. They're both saying, I'm Amelia Earhart. Japanese shoot the wrong person and uh, basically kill the wrong person. And essentially, Bolum is left. So now Bolum is Earhart. Earhart is Bolum. They send Bolum back five years later. And then Bolum shows up in New Jersey, basically out of the blue. Um, and that's when um, that's when she comes back. So it's a real crazy crazy story but people that are doing it are experts in the field and they they know like they know like they know that Earhart was Bolum and Bolum was Earhart so it's it's a really crazy story and it yes it is absolutely uh, a, a, a rabbit hole for sure you know for just to just to touch the Bolum theory alone is a, is a major 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 rabbit hole I oh think. yeah it 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 reminds me there we've said it many times there's so many parallels between the DV Cooper world and the Amelia Earhart world. Yep. And there are these theories with D.B. Cooper where it's like, that's so unbelievable. And then you start looking into it for a minute. You're like, well, that kind of checks out. That makes sense. I can't quite disprove that. No, but that's interesting. Yeah. And with Irene Bolin, I, I was listening to the show last night. And then today at work, <laughs> I was standing around and I went back to it on my phone. I was like looking into that. And then I I love having weird and rare books. So the idea that that first edition of that Kloss book Mm -hmm. was they discontinued the sale of the book. Yeah. Right. After the lawsuit. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And this is, this is McGraw Hill. So, I mean, if you guys, you know, if you have people who don't know books, if you Google McGraw Hill, it's still one of the biggest publishers in the world. And so, yeah, they, they had this book, Joe Kloss, who was an author, 
wrote this book. He based the book that he wrote off of Joe Gervais's, Joe Gervais's um, work, you know, his, his lifelong work at the time. I mean, he had done a lot of work on it. And um, he, he basically, you know, Joe Gervais was sort of his star investigator and, and Klaus wrote this book based off his work and they put it out and it, it pissed Irene Bolam off, uh, you know, aggressively to the point where there's this there's this press conference and you could probably Google image search it. You could probably Google in, or YouTube search a, a, a small snippet of it, uh, of the, of the press conference where she's holding the book, you know, basically upside down, sort of St. Anthony upside down, like St. Anthony in a way reverse crucifixion style. And she's stomping on the book in the, in the uh, press conference is saying, I'm, I'm not this mystery woman. You know, I'm not Amelia Earhart. I don't know why people are saying this. I just want to be left alone. And uh, yeah, they, they have this lawsuit and this lawsuit happens and she wins the lawsuit. And as a result of that lawsuit or of her winning that lawsuit, uh, some of the fallout includes making McGraw-Hill pull the book, which they they did. So that book now is, you can probably get it on Amazon and things, but like a, like a first printing of that book is is pretty, is, right now it's pretty rare. You can get it eBay, Amazon sometimes, but it's rare. When I was looking at it, it's only like 55 bucks. Yeah, it's not too expensive. It's, it's not too expensive. And it's a really, it's a really interesting read. It's, it's, you know, it's a controversial book. Uh, there's no way to, uh, to, to, to deny that, uh, you know, whether you believe in, in what they're saying or you don't, it's, it's certainly a, a controversial book. And um, it's, it's probably, probably the most controversial book in all of the Earhart lore. You know, it's, it's probably at the very, very ahead uh, of the pack, I think. All right. Give me the best evidence and the worst evidence for Irene to be Amelia. The best evidence, and I, I I won't step on his toes uh, because I consider him a friend, but the best evidence is Todd Swindell's forensic study that he did. He did photographic overlay forensic study. He's talked to multiple experts. He's dedicated his whole life to this. And he's he's been just doggedly researching this thing. And he actually knew Gervais uh, really close. Um, and he actually has um, a documentary called Protecting Earhart that's coming out uh, sometime, I think sometime this year. And uh, in that he talks, it's like some of Gervais's last, you know, uh, uh, testimony on film and everything. His forensic work, I think if you combine his, his forensic photo overla overlays and you can and you combine like the handwriting overlays and some of the stuff that they put sort of, you know, called it put the task for Bolum, you know, Bolum being Earhart. A lot of that stuff matches up. Um, I, I hate to say it that cut and dry, but if you look at it, it's it's very compelling, especially the age progression stuff. If you look at the age progression stuff and you over, they, they actually overlay it. It's on his, all on his, on his website. If they overlay it, uh, it almost is a dead, she's a dead ringer. She's a dead ringer. Um, the body type is different. People that oppose it would say that the body type is very different. Um, but I think that, you know, people, people's body types change as they get older. It does happen. And I feel like if you look at that study that, that Todd Swindell did, um, and, and you watch that documentary when it comes out, I think you'll be you'll be pretty impressed. So a lot, lot of interesting stuff from, from that side of things. I would That's definitely I watch that. Yeah, I, I hope so. I hope everybody goes and watches it. I hope it, you know, I, I, I want him, to, you know, the work he's done has been, he's been sort of working in silence for a long time and the work that he's done, it needs to have a, a bright, bright spotlight shown on it. And, um, you know, whether he's right or he's wrong, that's not up for me to, to, to say uh, that's up to the public that watches it to to agree that hey are you sold on this is this is this enough for you to consider that this is what actually what was her ultimate fate and um you know it's it's um it's the happiest of endings it, it's it's still a very sad ending but 
if you're looking at this as, you know, a choose your own adventure, like those books we used to read when we were kids, uh, none of these endings are good. None of these endings are pleasant for her or Noonan. Uh, she either, she either crashes in the, in the ocean. I mean, just shy of her destination and drowns uh, in, in a very terrible crash uh, or she is she dies alone in a jail cell in Garapan prison, uh, basically slowly poisoned to death with dysentery, or she gets executed and kicked into a shallow grave and with no marker, no nothing, or she dies as a castaway alone on an island in the middle of the biggest, you know, it's it's a needle in the biggest floating haystack on the face of the earth. She dies alone. Um, so if you if you consider all of those alternate endings. Uh, you know, her coming back to, to, and being repatriated and essentially never flying again is, uh, while it's very sad and it's really the the death of that persona or that version of her life. I mean, she still lives and, uh, she dies in 1982, uh, as a very old woman. Uh, and, uh, that's, you know, that's what some people believe happened to her. So, you know, sort of a sad ending, but not near as terrible as the other ones. If you could go back in time. What would you tell Irene to do to prove or disprove this? Well, I don't think Irene, you know, Irene in private, it's interesting because you see certain things and you see Irene sort of like, yeah, I'm not Amelia Earhart and a wink and a nod kind of thing, you know, and she was sort of, she would do that according to the people that I've spoken with uh, that had had interviewed people that were intimately close with Bolum and Earhart that, that knew them both. They, they believe that, that Bolum very publicly obviously uh, did not, you know, did not think, believe in the theory and obviously didn't believe that she was Earhart, but privately she believed uh, some people would say that she believed that she was Earhart and that, you know, she kind of, she kind of would like admit to certain people and that's, she did admit to certain people supposedly that she was Earhart. What I would tell her would, would probably be, uh, you know, to, to end it one way or another. I, I think uh, she had an opportunity to end it uh, by giving her fingerprints after the, after she won the case, the judge presiding over the case wanted her to give a set of fingerprints and she denied that request. And because of that, they sort of had to, had to do a workaround and they reached almost a settlement that was almost like ceremonial. It's just like a, you know, it's like those settlements like, Oh, I'm going to give you $5 to buy, uh, this stadium or from you or something, some ridiculous thing, just so they can say they paid them. They did something, something really similar to that. I don't have a number or anything like that, but it was a ceremonial deal and they just decided to squash it, pull the book and basically try to revert her life backwards to where she could kind of, you know, slink back into anonymity and just kind of live out the rest of her life. So, but I, it's interesting that she didn't want to give her fingerprints. Now you could, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's because she was Earhart. She could have valued her privacy, you know, valued her privacy, privacy immensely. And she could have just not wanted to give out those. That's a personal, you know, piece of information she didn't want to give out. Or you could read into that thinking that, well, she didn't give it out because she had something to hide. Does it mean she was Earhart? Not necessarily. Uh, she was married to a gentleman by the name of Guy Bolum, who was a former MI6 agent. It's very possible that she maybe just had connections, you know, uh, one way or another to through Guy Bolum or through maybe some other work that she did that would have outed her for something else that had nothing to do with Earhart. But I would tell her, give up the prints. If I could have any kind of like finality or decision-making over it, I would say, give up the prints, um, give up the prints and whatever secrets come with those prints, you have to let those go. You know? And I think that's probably, if I could tell her anything, I would, I would probably tell her that. 
gosh, I wonder if there's some way to, uh, well, she has kids. Couldn't there be some sort of DNA? She was cremated. So uh, cremated by request. And uh, specifically because she did not want anybody to have access to her body after she died, which is. Oh my gosh. If you're dead, why would you care? You know? Um, so, you know, you, you take stuff like that and you read into it as, as little or as deep as you want to read into it. And you know, I, I'm preaching to the choir here, of course, with with everything you've done. But it's like you, you know, you you take all these little details and you think, oh, well, that's really interesting, and you read into it how, however much you want to. You have to decide whether that thread is worth tugging on, because sometimes when you tug on that thread, you might get the whole ball of string. You don't know, uh, or you might get nothing. You know, and so that's that's really what these cases: DB Cooper, uh, Amelia Earhart, Jack the Ripper, you know, John Wilkes Booth. Take any; it doesn't matter. Take any one of them. They're all the same in that in, in that aspect is that you can you can tug on something and you never know how little or how big that's going to be. And um, so, yeah, so that, you know, that's that's Bolam is just a, a really fascinating character individual. Was she Earhart? I, I don't know. I know that Todd Swindell believes uh, in his heart of hearts that she was. Um, I also know that Rick Gillespie and people that champion Castaway believe in their heart of hearts that she died on that island. Um, everybody. That's working uh, Japanese capture. I mean, it doesn't matter. You just take your pick. They believe uh, in that wholeheartedly. So that particular, uh, you know, avenue they're going down. And it, it takes, it, it would take an awful lot. It would take an awful lot to sway any one of them uh, to go uh, sort of reach across the aisle, so to speak, um, and sort of kind of, you know, abandon ship and get onto another theory. But yeah, Bolum is, I think Bolum's, Bolum is the wild card. And I think, the plane that Bill Snavely is investigating in Buka, that's the wild card. Because if he uh, is able to determine that that plane is the plane and not just a plane, then you're going to have to, you know, it's 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 really just going to sort of turn the page on one section of the Earhart story. And it's going to begin a new chapter because now you got to determine how she got 1,700 miles away from Howland Island. Is it as easy as it as what Bill Snavely is saying, where they just you know, it makes logical sense. They, they, they knew what they were doing. They knew they couldn't make it. They turned around or was there something nefarious at play? Maybe the part of a Japanese or part of a spy mission that they were supposed to be spying. And maybe Buka was where they were going to hang out potentially and, and wait for someone to rescue them or, you know, who knows? It just gets, it just gets to be really, really crazy. So um, I think B- Bolum and the, the, the plane and Buka, those are to me, those are the wild cards. People would, people that know this case, are going to say I'm absolutely nuts, but that's just my, that's my belief. I believe those are the two elephants in the room. What will it take to solve this case 85 years later? Find the plane. That's it. You find that plane. Uh, you've got DNA. You've got, I, I, the way, the way I do this is the way I tell people this is really there's, you know, you people fall, first of all, when people do this case or when they look in the Amelia Earhart, they don't even know. Most of them don't know that there was a second person on that plane, her navigator, Fred Noonan, who is, was an icon. I mean, he, this guy, if you had a navigator, if you needed a navigator at that time on board your plane, this was the guy you would, this would have been the, like Michael Jordan of navigation, like the, you know, just to pick it real, uh, real straightforward. So he would have, he was the best, but the plane was, I look at the plane as a third body in this case, you know, this, this plane, everybody's going after this plane. Obviously nobody's going after Earhart and Noonan. They're long dead by now. And if they're in a, a grave in Saipan, you might find some DNA. There's, there's also some bones, the Nicomororo bones that were found on Nicomororo Island in the 1940s. And uh, 
you know, that's been a, a subject of great debate. Are those actually the bones of Amelia Earhart? Um, but the plane is the big deal. If they pull that plane out of the ocean tomorrow, uh, two things are going to happen. One, the general public is likely going to have some finality to this case. Um, we, we found the plane. We know it's her plane. You know, they can, they can identify it. Things, as, as you know, things are, rem- are, as, are preserved remarkably well in deep ocean remarkably well i mean it's it's insane how good some of the stuff that they brought up from the titanic uh you know how, how good a condition some of that stuff was so this is a plane that you know if she was able to put it down correctly um and properly would have would be in relatively good shape if they pull that plane out of the ocean tomorrow then you've got some finality there uh then you have to sort of finish telling the ending of that story if Bill Snavely and Project Blue Angel and the people that are involved in that are able to to grab a, a piece of the plane or something that has a serial number that we can match off of a uh, a parts list or something like that. That's checkmate because now you know that that plane is there and it, it, it's a part that matched her serial number on her plane. If you can narrow that down, then you've got you've got this entirely new story to tell. Now everybody's going to look right at Snavely and, and Snavely is going to have to basically be a biographer of sorts. He's going to have to tell the end of her life. He's going to have to figure that out. I think if that happened, you'd have a lot of people that would sort of jump ship and would sort of help. I think they would help, you know, try to and try to end that story and, and tell the, you know, put the period on the end of the sentence, so to speak. Um, but that's what it's going to take. You're going to, it's either going to, see the thing is either going to get solved uh, one of two ways, the plane or DNA. If you can get, if you can happen to get both in one shot, then it's it's over. Do you want this to be solved? Absolutely. I want this to be solved. A thousand percent. Yes. If this was solved tomorrow, uh, I would cancel the book. I would be happy to cancel the book. I would be happy to stop recording the show. Uh, I would, it would be an, it would be an absolute, it would be an absolute just uh, breath of fresh air. It'd be an honor to know. We need to know. We have a, I've said this, and this is sort of, I don't want to say controversial, but people disagree with me on this. We have a we have a, a a moral and a historical obligation, you know, to be in till it's over, to find this out and to figure this out. And you have some of the brightest men and women on the face of this earth working on this case. They may not agree on what happened to her, but they're all working to forward it. And anytime anybody forwards anything in a case like this, and as well as Cooper, you know this, it's good for the case. What's good for the case is going to be good for the general public. It's going to be good for history. And it's going to be good for us to all have finality. She is, uh, I will argue this with anybody, she is the holy grail of aviation. Um, She's the holy grail of mystery. If this plane were to be found tomorrow, that would be the holy grail. And it would be it would close the door, uh, at least partially on on and, and put sort of like an ending uh, to the story on on the biggest historical mystery of all time. I, I I will argue that with anybody because I feel like Earhart Earhart was an icon. And because of her, her, her iconic status and her, because of her being America's sweetheart and really still being considered America's sweetheart to this day, even talk to NASA, they'll tell you uh, that that means something. So if they find her, regardless, I don't care who's right. I don't care if it, if it ends up that she was Bolum and she came back to the United States. I don't, I don't care if she died on, you know, if she died on Nicomororo and it doesn't matter to me. I just want, uh, I want some finality. If, if Snavely's right, good for him. He's got an attitude that I love uh, for this case. He's got like a new attitude toward this case. And I think that's really wonderful, but you know, 
he, he, he'll tell you the same thing. If you had him on the show, he'd tell you, look, I just, we just want to find her. We don't care for her. If we're wrong. We'll tell you we're wrong. And um, so I think, yeah, absolutely. This case needs to be solved. It's, it's, it's screaming to be solved much like the Cooper cases. I think, I think you got some really intelligent people that are on the case that are working on it. And I think if anybody's going to find it, if anybody's going to finish it, it's this group of people. Is there a, a central forum or webpage that people congregate at? So there used to be, there's, it's not like drop zone or anything like that. There used to be there. So there's the, the congregation of these pages has to do with what you believe. Again, if you're a member of, of if you're, if you believe in Castaway, uh, if you believe in it as much as, as, uh, you know, those folks do, you're probably a member of Tiger or you're involved in the Tiger forums. Uh, there's also, there's an aviation mysteries forum. Um, that's, that's just covers everything, including Cooper and everything as well that you could go talk, uh, you know, go to talk to like-minded individuals on, uh, there's countless Facebook groups. So they're out there, but as far as like a centralized location, it's sort of all over the map. It really depends on what you believe and kind of what theory you subscribe to. And, and if you want to sit there and scream at people on the internet for a couple of hours that's that's where you go other than your unreleased book what what books or documentaries do you point people toward like hey if you want to learn about this this is great based off based off theory uh, because you kind of have to narrow it down like that i would say um you can you can get this on youtube still uh amelia Earhart, the lost evidence that came out in july of, of 17 i believe right be- right before july of 17 i could be off on that uh, that starred Dick Spink, uh, who's a absolute sweetheart of a guy. Um, What's his name again? His name is Dick Spink, D-I-C-K, and then Spink. Uh, That's Richard a dope Spink. Name. It's a great name, and he is that guy. I mean, I could, yeah. He's he he he's that guy's a killer, man. He's really awesome. He's a really great investigator, um, and he's worked with Les Kinney, who was who was a star, one of the stars of that show, and that that show debuted the now, I guess, depending on who you talk to. Uh, famous or infamous Jaluit doc photo that came out that had supposedly showed Fred Noonan and Amelia Earhart in Jaluit uh, in this one image with the plane in the background and everything. Like it's like if there was a photographic smoking version of a smoking gun, it would be that that photo. That was at the sort of the center of that. Another Japanese capture documentary you could look at is uh, by a fellow by the name of Rich Martini, and he interviewed. Uh, a lot of the military that was on site, that was on Saipan, that was stationed in the Marsh Islands in Saipan, uh, Julius Neighbors, who was a code breaker on Saipan, who supposedly intercepted a message regarding Earhart's playing being kept in a hangar at Esleto Airfield. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Robert Wallach, who supposedly found Amelia Earhart's briefcase. They were they were kind of looking through all of these, uh, this um, uh, basically post-war zone area, and they blew the doors off this safe, and they thought they were going to be, it was going to be full of, you know, yen or whatever. They were going to have all this money, and uh, he grabbed this briefcase, and he ran out with this briefcase, and he kind of got to where he could open it, and it's, lo and behold, it's got all of Amelia Earhart's paperwork and her passports and all her stuff in it, and he's thinking, well, this is five years later after she disappeared. What the hell is this doing in Saipan? You know, this thing is, this stuff is bone dry. We were told she drowned in the middle of the ocean. What's going on here? So that's Rich Martini's documentary. Uh, you could look that up. Just Google Rich Martini, Amelia Earhart. It'll come up. Uh, as far as like Japanese, or as far as uh, some of the other ones, they did, Nat Geo just did a, a documentary. So Bob Bob Ballard, uh, if you believe in the um, castaway hypothesis, uh, look up Expedition Amelia. That was a really great one. It was starred Bob Ballard who found the Titanic. And uh, he went out and actually searched off the shores of Nicomororo and kind of assisted uh, Tiger and their team. 
And they also brought uh, forensic dogs to that island to sort of as a new way of trying to determine if 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 what they're theorizing is correct. That's a good one. There's a ton of them. There's really a ton of them, but it just depends on the theory and depends on what you want to. Uh, Todd Swindell's upcoming when that when that drops, that'll be the definitive piece for Irene Bolum, no doubt. Uh, when that comes out, that'll be out. And that's called Protecting Earhart. So there's going to be a few of them out there you can find. All right. Why do people with no direct personal involvement become <laughs> obsessed with unsolved crimes? Oh, that's a hard question. There's many reasons, I think. It, really, you can chalk it up to it being really a, a, a thing of passion. Uh, people get involved in this because they are interested. Usually they, they come to it because they've got some kind of a background in something that has to do with something with the case. So like it could be a military background for Earhart. It could be, uh, you know, a navigation background. It could be all kinds of different things. And people come to this flock to this case for, from many different areas. I think people do that because, you know, they're, they're interested in, they're so interested in finding out what happened that we just can't, they just can't let it go. It's, it's an addiction. And I feel like people that want to get involved in something and want to be part of something that might be bigger than themselves, that might be, that might be a, a, a spot for attraction for these cases for DB Cooper, for Amelia Hart and for all these other ones, people just, maybe they figure, Hey, uh, there's a familial connection to it. Maybe, maybe they, maybe their father, you know, happened to know Earhart or, or their grandfather, you know, helped Earhart with one of her flights or something like that. Or they are, they were personally involved with her uh, association with Purdue or, you know, whatever the case is, you can sort of take your pick, but I, I feel like people come to it out of a, uh, a really to a certain degree, just a, a, an extreme passion. And they, they want to know what the ending is, you know, it's like, you can look at something and it's, it's almost like you get that, you get that little, you get that little nag in your brain. That's like, what the hell happened to them? Like what, you know, why did they, why did, you know, same thing with Cooper, right? You know, what the, did he survive that jump? Yeah. He got, he had to have survived that jump. Right. So who the, who the hell was this guy? You know, you just kind of like, you can't let it go. That's why they call it the vortex, right? That's, I mean, there's no really cool word for the Earhart case uh, like vortex, but um, they're all they're all rabbit holes, and that's that's kind of why I, I think why I call the book that because that's that's really what it is. It is a rabbit hole. Um, it's one of those situations where these things get so attractive, the more you look into it, um, the more excited you get. You know, the more excited you become. Anybody, you you can and you can. This isn't just um, this isn't germane to just like you know um, historical mystery. I mean, you could take any true crime is full of this. I mean. There are murders out there. Natalie Holloway, uh, John Benet Ramsey, uh, to pick any pick any serial killer, uh, you know it doesn't matter really. There, it, it's it's like a it's like a disease. You know, it's 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 like an infection. It just spreads, and people start talking about it. And the bigger the name, uh, I think, the hotter the case. That also goes both ways, though. People are sick of hearing about Amelia Earhart and D.B. Cooper. I'm sure I've heard it from people directly. And I know that people, when I do guest spots on shows, uh, people will be like, Amelia Earhart, get the hell out of here. Like, I don't want to hear more about Amelia Earhart. Didn't, don't they find her like every year? Yes, that's true. Yeah. That's that's kind of the point. Uh, that's part of the attraction, right? It's all part of this package. They find Amelia Earhart every year. I get those emails six times, a, you know, six times a week, sometimes, you know, when it's really hot. Um, and then same thing with Cooper, right? You could, you could attest to that. 
uh, I'm sure you get random emails all the time saying, oh, my, you know, I know who D.B. Cooper was and it's, it was this guy or it was this woman or it was this person or these people or whatever. Um, so that's I think you wrap that all up into a package and that's why people come to these cases and flock to these cases. And I think that's a good thing because you, you have to, you know, you have to sort of wean out some of the people that maybe uh, might be doing more harm to the case than good. But for the most part, I think people come to this because at the end of the day, they want to see it solved. Uh, for Earhart, uh, it, it veers differently than Cooper because Earhart's got a legitimate legacy uh, that, you know, people want to uphold and they care about that legacy and they don't want to see that. They, they don't want to see the disappearance overcloud the legacy. They don't want her to be remembered for simply disappearing in the last few minutes of her life, you know, wherever those few minutes were. Um, they want to see that. They want to see that legacy. And I think that's, you know, you package all that together. And that's that's probably why so many people flock to this case, um, as well as Cooper and so many others. It's a question I personally have thought about a lot. Mm, I'm sure. Being in the same boat. Uh, not only why does that person care, but more than that, why do I care? Why am I checking the D.B. Cooper forum before my head hits my pillow at night? Mm -hmm. Why, when I have two minutes standing in line to get a haircut, am I immediately going to the drop zone? Mm -hmm. What yeah. is so messed up about me that I need <laughs> to I need to learn about D.B. Cooper multiple times a day? Yeah, I mean, we're we're I, I think we're both great examples of just being obsessed with a case and sort of getting swallowed by a case. I, I'm the first person to say, you know, while I'm an out, I consider myself to be an outsider because of my position I take in the case. I much like you, uh, you know, I've sort of I've been swallowed a whole by this and um, I've I've walked away multiple times. Uh, no, I am. I'm happy to say that <laughs> I'm happy to say that. You know, we, we did we did walk away from Earhart uh, when we did vanish. We did the, this uh, episode 16, which is was the, now season one of the show. We did walk away from Earhart. I, I, I never have done a vanished episode on Earhart since. And it has been a few years now. But I mean, we, we did do like one return episode for Chasing Earhart. And, and truthfully, I've got I've got some that I've kind of wanting to do that are sort of in the can halfway. But um, we just can't privately all always you know it, it basically just shifted from the podcast to the book you know and then the book sort of now overtook my life again and and so the case overtook my life again and and i find myself reminiscing and going back through what we recorded those years a couple years back and forgetting some of the little things that we recorded and some of the things we talked about and that stuff sort of reignites my interest in the case and of course anytime somebody comes up with a new piece of evidence you're of course going to get excited again and you're going to want to you're going to think hey is is this it is this the piece that's going to actually lead to something legitimate here or is it just going to be more of the same and so i think that's that might explain why you're looking at drop zone or whenever you can I, it's not unlike myself i mean i have the facebook our own little facebook group and then we i'm always looking up Earhart's art stuff i'm getting emails on like google updates on amelia Earhart and stuff like why haven't i turned those off if i've walked away from the case it's because you never really walk away from the case as much as you want to say that you have, there are only a couple of people that have that have really turned around and shut the door on the case and just either they and, and I think that only happens if you if you get you either get so burned on something that it taints your entire the view your own view in its entirety on the case or uh, you just grow tired enough 
to where that overtakes the desire to want to know more. And that's very rare that that happens in these cases. Oh, I don't tell me that. Yeah, it's very rare, man. It's very rare. D.B. Cooper will be with you forever, even if the even if the case is solved. You know, you have you have created, you know, it's just like I love that that line in The Dark Knight when the Joker says you change things forever. Like you you really have you've created, you know, what uh, I, I steal this term from Scott and Forrest of Astonishing Legends, but you've created the podcast of record for D.B. Cooper. So when people want to know about D.B. Cooper, they're going to look up the Cooper Vortex and they're going to see the work that you've done and they're going to see the coverage and how broad the coverage is that you've given it. Uh, and that you've you've given everybody a platform to speak on their own views, and they're going to look at that. And you can only hope that that kind of a presentation is going to uh, to draw people in to at least get a foundational understanding of the case uh, to to the point in which they could pick their favorite suspect for Cooper, or whatever, and then go off on their own little tangent, their own deal there, and research that. But that's what inspires uh, change. That's what inspires uh, breaking news in these cases. That's what inspires. Um, you know, basically anything happening that's of any substantial value in these cases uh, are shows like yours, are shows, you know, hopefully like like mine, you know, that people will go out and they'll they'll listen to it and then they'll they'll get turned on enough on to something that they'll, you know, something will a light bulb will hit or something will happen and they'll they could end up being the one that solves it down the line. I mean, who knows? Who knows what your work could spawn, which I think is a really beautiful thing because you know, that's, that's what we, that's what we do as Americans. And as a, as a, as a society, that's how we are, you know? So yeah, man, it's going to be with you forever. It really is. Uh, regardless of what happens, it's going to be with you forever. You're going to be, you have played a role in this whole thing. So like you, I'll never be able to turn off my Google alerts. We're too involved now. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, we were just watching, we were just watching Titanic the other night and there's a, there's a line. I'm, I'm, I'm big movie guys. So there's a line in there where, you know, Jack says to Rose, like, you jump, I jump, you know, remember, that's, that's, that's what happens. And that's, that's basically kind of like, you know, he says, I'm too involved now. And that's, that's what it is. I'm too involved now. Like, if, if they found Earhart, two weeks from today, they found Earhart, I would have more emails and phone calls and everything than, than I've ever had in my life, just because people, for whatever, for whatever reason, want to know my thoughts on what, you know, what's transpired here. And so we're, we're involved and, and deep down in, in the places that we don't talk about at parties, uh, we are intimately involved in this case to the point where like, it's, it's, it's part of the fiber of our beings. And if, if, you know, whether this, these cases get solved or they don't, you know, we're in till it's over, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you're feeling that day. We weren't even alive when these events happened. <laughs> right. Uh, that goes to show you that, these events matter. Why would they, you know, if, if that's the case, everybody who's died, you know, everybody who was alive at the time of the Earhart case is long gone by now. Um, you could make the case that there might be some, you know, there obviously are people that are alive that were involved in, in the, the D.B. Cooper case, the flight crew and, and all that. But, you know, some people make the case of Cooper might still be alive some, somewhere, maybe a very, very old man, but might still be alive. Um, we come around to a case like this because people like intrigue. They like, you know, historical mystery is a, um, is an attractive, uh, you know, thing. It, people just really get excited about, about historical mystery. And they, you know, I'll, and I'll give you a concrete example. So like for season two, we, first of all, we were never going to do a season two of the show. The show was going to end 
uh, now with, you know, with Earhart and it was going to begin and end with Earhart. That's what I wanted. That was my original goal. And then in having conversations off the record with Jen and talking about different stuff, you know, we decided, okay, you know, we could probably move on with this. And we decided to tackle, we launched season two Halloween night by tackling Jack the Ripper. And you can't get any more 180 from Amelia Earhart than Jack the Ripper. Uh, season two, the theme of season two really is uh, to, to, to different degrees, evil. Uh, D.B. Cooper is probably the least evil of all the people, but there's a lot of bad guys in season two. Season one, if, if you know, we, if Earhart was considered, you know, uh, like I said, America's sweetheart, we went the opposite. I had no idea how big a rabbit hole Jack the Ripper entails. I had no clue. It shows my ignorance to the case. I had no idea. Jen knew a lot more because she she remembers remembers it in college, remembers kind of studying it and kind of being into it really aggressively and, and you know years ago. And so she brought it to my attention and I I had no idea. And I looked up Jack the Ripper. I started searching about it and I started going down that rabbit hole and re, you know reading what I could, watching what I could, listening to what I could. And I realized that 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 you know we are in a very small bubble. I am in this Earhart bubble with everybody that's encompassed in that bubble. Uh, you are likely in the same spot with Cooper. When you venture outside those cases, you realize that there are other bubbles. Uh, there are other people that are all encompassing um, within a specific case. Uh, Jack the Ripper, John Wilkes Booth, uh, Sleepy Hollow, believe it or not. We, we did a really fun like Sleepy Hollow thing uh, way back when. Um, and of course, you know, Henry Avery and some other ones that, we, that we're going to be doing. Um, that is a really crazy uh, idea that there are all, all these bubbles around. And I had no idea that Jack the Ripper was, was as big as, as it was. And it went back as far as it did, you know, this is going all the way back to, uh, you know, 1888. So we're looking at, you know, 50 years ago for Cooper, we're looking at 85 years ago for Earhart. Well, this goes even farther back. And this, this case for Ripper is just absolutely bonkers insane. And, um, so that's, you know, it, it all goes back to what I used to say. You don't, you know, and I say it on the show a couple of times, we don't know what we don't know. And um, that's sort of the part of the fun aspect of doing the show is, is I, I don't know. I didn't know a whole lot about D.B. Cooper before I, I decided to. I mean, you know, I called you when we talked offline. Right. And I said, hey, I'm thinking about do, we're thinking about doing Cooper as a series for the show. What do you think? And I, of course, you were extremely supportive. But actually, you know, I, wasn't. Like, I didn't know. Actually, I wasn't supportive. No, because your original. Your original idea, I was like, look, if you're involved with this other group, then I don't want to be a part of your project. Oh, that's right. That's right. I remember you telling me that now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because we were originally going to do Rackstraw as our, uh, but again, that shows my ignorance, right? Because I, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't realize how big a deal Robert Rackstraw is in the D.B. Cooper. Like, I didn't realize that he had been done to death. I didn't realize, I knew about Kenny Christensen because I talked to Brad Meltzer a couple of times off the record. Uh, we did a shoot with him for the documentary for Earhart. And I mentioned it to him like in passing. And of course I had seen Decoded and I, I Buddy Levy was on our show uh, for, for, during, for, the, for the Earhart segment we did on the show. And so I, I, I'd been familiar with Kenny Christensen a little bit, but other than Christensen, that was it. I had no idea. And so I'm thinking Rackstraw is like an unknown. And I was like, oh, we're going to blow the case wide open with Robert Rackstraw. I had no, you know, shows I'm I was stupid with, I was, I had no, I had no idea. I hadn't properly researched it. And, but, you know, part of that I think is, is sort of the, uh, the attraction of the show, right. Is because, you know, a lot of the stuff we are uncovering um, sort of as, as an audience member in, in a way, because, and, you know, we did the same thing with, um, 
with Jack the Ripper. I I I I gotta tell you, like I didn't do anything on per like I didn't research a whole lot on Ripper on purpose. I saw how big it was and then I stopped because I wanted Jen to sort of be the dominant authority in the show on that particular uh series. And I wanted to represent, I wanted to be a representation of the audience who maybe hadn't heard much about Ripper and uh wanted to uh you know wanted to represent that shock of sort of seeing those crime scene photos on like the Mary Jane Kelly crime scene murder uh, photos and stuff of, I wanted to, and it was like stomach, it was like, it was stomach churning uh, to see those photos. And we, I, I viewed them for the first time right before we recorded. And I did that on purpose. Cause I wanted to like, I wanted the audience to hear that sort of visceral sort of reaction I had to those photos. But to go back to Cooper, like I remember reaching out to you and, and yeah, you're right. You, you, you weren't cause you were like, well, you know, and that's, that's kind of how it is with this show. Uh, we did Booth, John Wilkes Booth. And I'll give a shout out to a, a very special guy. His name is Dave Taylor. He is the, um, he will hate that I say this, but I, I, I will say it publicly. He is the, the authority when it comes to John Wilkes Booth and the Booth family. And he, he knows, I mean, he's, he's the guy. And so I reached out to him originally way back when, when we were going to do Booth. Originally the, the plan for season two was to do 16 episodes on Booth and to go real hard like we did on Earhart. Um, but then sort of things got in the way and life got in the way. And we decided to just make Booth a segment, uh, a five episode segment of season two. And, and Dave originally didn't want to, he was sort of standoffish as well. He was kind of like, oh, I don't really know about this. I don't, I don't really want to get, I usually don't get involved with this kind of stuff because it's kind of like, it's a little woo woo. It's a little out there. Right. And I think it was, it was a combination of, of, of how we do the show. It was a combination of trial by jury and sort of like what we do with that. And it was a combination of, of my co-host Jennifer Taylor's sort of expertise on the show and how she was handling the booth segment uh, that brought him aboard. And he became instrumental in, in that booth series, just like you became instrumental in our Cooper series. Um, we wanted to, you know, our, the whole par portion of the show, the big, a big part of the show is bringing in, surrounding ourselves with experts, with people who know more than we do about the case and who can sort of be our guide through these cases. Because who better than you to guide us through you know, guide us through sort of uh, guide our audience through like a foundational understanding of this case and some of the suspects and everything. You, you, you sort of get in bed with the people that you admire. You know, you, you, you want to be around people that you admire. You want to be around people that you, whose work you admire and um, you know, not to, you know, keep uh, stroking your ego, but um, that's really what it was. I mean, it, it's really as simple as that. Who do we know? Who, who, who do we reach out to that knows this case? whatever case we're tackling better than anybody else. And for Booth, it was Dave Taylor. For D.B. Cooper, it was you. We'll have some people for, for Avery. We had people for Jack the Ripper. And of course, we certainly had people for Earhart. So I know it's a very long-winded, very, very long-winded answer, but- No, I think that's a great you know, answer. That's just kind of how it works. One thing I really love about that is you're that guy for the Amelia Earhart crew. So maybe that's why you, you know who to ask. Because yeah. if I asked you like, hey, I'm going to do this Amelia project, um, give me five experts that would be good for it. Mm -hmm. You could do that all day. And you know, like, oh, this yeah. guy would be, this guy would be super into that idea. This guy, he'll never do it. Uh, this person would mm -hmm. love to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree with that. And I, that's certainly, you certainly helped in that respect for Cooper as well. You sort of, uh, I remember telling you, like, I just, I need a little push. Like I need a little push in the right direction. Like this is where we're going to go. Um, after I talked with you, we sort of rethought our position initially. And who we, who, you know, and you know, you know, I love a good dark horse that's, and I, I stole that term from you, but we kind of talked about that in the air hard a little bit, but I love a good dark horse. And that's why 
I asked you, uh, basically, you know, who's doing good work here? Who's doing good work in this case that hasn't had the spotlight shown on them? We, that's what I. That's where I want to live. I want to be in in those spots because, you know, for two reasons. One, because you get to break stuff that people, you know, really necessarily wouldn't even take a second look at, um, and that's always fun. Uh, and, and two is because you get to you get to pro, you get to use your platform, you know, however small or big it is, it doesn't really matter, but you get to use that platform to prop up other people. And, and that's what I want to do. That's what I wanted to do with Drew. Uh, spoiler alert for if you haven't heard Cooper, but uh, for, for, for Ted B. Braden and for Drew and all the work he's done on that particular suspect and in, on, on, on Ted B. Braden's life. And, uh, you know, I did the same, we did the same thing for Jack the Ripper. Um, you know, with, uh, with John and Christine who wrote the book on, on Jack the Ripper and, um, on the suspect we featured there. So, you know, we'll continue to do that. I think that's important because who wants to hear, you know, 20 different takes on the same suspect or the same theory. Um, you know, and it's, it, it's a tough position to be in sometimes it, it's, it seems really obvious, but it's a tough position to be in sometimes. Cause you, you tend to sort of put yourself in harm's way and you put yourself in, in sort of the center of all these attacks coming from all these different spots. So you're now you're having to defend yourself from like the right and the left. And the, you know, it's like, you can't, you know, it's hard to do that. So people, I think people sometimes tend to underestimate what it is we do and our position in these cases. And, um, you know, you know, more than anybody I'm preaching in the choir here, but you, you know, you're in that same boat with me, you know, you get attacked from everywhere. Uh, people turn on you. Um, it becomes yeah, very personal. Both, I'm sure friends with people who absolutely hate each other, but we're able to stay yes. friends with both of them. Yeah. I, I, th- I think, uh, for me, it's, it's just a matter of like people, hopefully they, you know, the body of work that we put out garners enough respect that people can, can vehemently disagree with other people, but they can still respect what we're trying to do. Now that's not always the case. And as you know, you know, better than anyone that, you know, you have to sort of answer those ridiculous questions. Well, why did you give so-and-so a platform? And I, or, or you have to respond to those statements of, I'm not going to come on your show because you gave so-and-so a platform, or you believe that, you know, my theory is the truth. It's not a theory, you know, y- yada, yada, yada. You hear that shit all the time, ad nauseum to the point where it's like, look, you don't want to come on the show. That's totally fine. I don't need to hear the rest of the shit. Just tell me no. I have had people say, Chris, no, thank you. And that's great. I, I, those are my favorite ones because like I respect it. And it makes me want to sort of like lean in on them a little bit more aggressively. And be like, well, why not? You know, but I, I get it because they probably feel that way. And they're just trying to be respectful and trying to be courteous, which I you have to respect because there are people, as you said, that absolutely hate each other, that will f- get into physical altercations if they're in the same room. And, um, you know, we can't obviously don't want that. So we're, we're trying to navigate those waters basically as, as, as calmly as we can. And it, you know, sometimes we have to deal with the fallout that nobody else knows about. And it's, it's unfortunate, but it's just sort of a side effect of what we do. I asked Marty Andrade on my show, shout out to Marty. If you're listening, Marty. Yes. Do you think I'm doing a disservice to this case by giving an Mm. audience to fringe theories? And without hesitation, yeah. he said, yes, I do. And <laughs> I <Yes>. absolutely <laughs> loved that answer. And he was like, you know, I like your show a lot. 
I think you've done a lot for the community. You know a lot about this case. But sometimes I listen to an episode and I think, what is he doing with this person, with this guest yeah. on? Yeah. And I understand the argument. Yeah, I, 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 I do too. I totally get that. And I, I'm sure there's a lot of people that will listen to this that say that that I'm I've certainly I certainly fit that description as well that we've given sort of a platform to fringe fringe theories and things of that nature and, and all that. But my answer to that is, you know, these people know like they know like they know that this is what happened to Earhart. And in these cases, you have to extend that handout. You have to, you, you know, you have to be willing to talk to people uh, because at the end of the day, to me, it's all good, right? Like everything that can be put out there is, is good information to the point of, okay, people need to hear this. Let's put it all on the table. You know, we use inductive reasoning on the show all the time. It, you know, it's, it's a method of, I want to see everything. I want to hear everything. It might be ridiculous to this one person, uh, but, you know, sometimes a lot of the people that are involved in these cases, and of course I won't name names, but a lot of them are, 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 are so, it's like they can't see the forest for the trees. And so they're, they're, they're so close to these cases that they're, uh, they're basically unaware or even immune even, or they're so, they're, they're so numb to, uh, you know, a particular point of view or a particular argument against their respective theory or whatever the case is. And so like, a show like yours comes along or mine comes along and we're giving people platforms and they might've heard this same story a thousand times. And it's like, Oh shit, back to this again. But the general audience that we're making these shows for haven't likely heard of Irene Bolum uh, or, or of you know, the whole Buka thing, you know, they might've seen it something in passing, but they don't know about it. And at the end of the day, my job is to educate uh, and inform an audience at the end of the day. Um, this is everything we've got on this case. It's been 85 years. We're no closer to solving this case than we were on July 3rd, the day after they disappeared. We don't have, nobody has come up with anything. Everything that's, that anybody's ever come up with has either been disproven, uh, it's been debunked, uh, or it hasn't panned out. Um, if you take Japanese capture as just an example, and this is just one of them, it's a, it's an overwhelming amount of information in that theory. Overwhelming. You could do an entire series on it. Uh, and we've talked about that. But there is a and there's a lot of physical data. Like there's a like if we could the, the, with the Earhart case, it's almost like we just need something physical to tangible to latch onto, right? And that's why the Bill Snavely thing is so exciting, I think, because he's, he's got a plane. So that's pretty exciting. But Japanese capture, they've been, they just, they need something. And every time there's a piece of physical information that comes up in that case and that theory, it just somehow seems to get lost or it gets slips through the cracks or something happens to it. Well, where's the briefcase that Robert Wallach found on that on, on Saipan? Well, he gave it to an officer and that's true. They were supposed to do that at the time. And the officer gave him a receipt for this particular, literally wrote out a receipt, Amelia Earhart's passports and everything, gave it to Wallach. Wallach gets injured later in battle. Um, they have to cut all of his clothes off so they can work on his leg. And he's got this receipt in his money belt that he keeps wrapped around his person at all times. And he's shouting out, save the money belt, save the money belt. Cause he knows it's Amelia. I mean, he knows he's got something that's like the Holy grail, maybe if, if, if that's the case and the money belt gets lost. So we don't have any record now of this briefcase. <laughs> we don't have any record of this receipt. 
we only have what? We have a story. Now, everything begins with a story, and a story is what you need to get to light the fire under your ass to get going on a case. I agree with that a thousand percent. But we don't have any physical, tangible evidence. And that's that what I just told you that runs rampant throughout the Earhart case. And so Bill Snavely is quietly in the corner working on this, like that Indiana Jones, like Indy, they're digging in the wrong place. You know, like I stole that from Forrest Burgess talks about that all the time. He's over here quietly, like looking at this, this plane and thinking like, okay, it's probably not Earhart, but let me give you guys, you know, five different, you know, aspects of the plane that we're looking for that would potentially put it in the wheelhouse of a, of a Lockheed Electra 10E that Earhart flew. And it comes back, all five of those match. Okay, all five of those, those items are there. Like uh, I'm talking about like a twin-tailed, twin-engine plane, non-military, civilian aircraft. So Bill Snavely starts to walk the theory backwards and try to disprove that it's, try to prove that it's anybody else but Earhart. And he gets to the point after several years of, of, of burning himself out to the point where he's like, I don't, I, it's not, it couldn't be anybody else but Earhart. Like, I don't know. It's possibly, it could be someone else, but I don't know. And then, so things just start to sort of mount towards his, you know, mount in his favor. And, um, Buka becomes the elephant in the room. It's, it's, it's like a, it's like a murder investigation where you've got no body. Uh, let's, you know, we use this analogy in the show, you, you know, let's say you're investigating a murder, a murder, uh, a domestic violence incident that becomes a murder. You go to the, the couple's house. There's nobody anywhere. You might find a murder weapon. You might find, find some blood spatter on the wall. You might find some of those things, but there's nobody. Let's say you get a call from a, uh, you know, from a, a colleague and says, Hey, we've got this body that is uh, we found it like three, uh, like three miles away in this dumpster in this alley. If you're the detective investigating that, are you going to go look at that body? Are you just going to ignore it because it couldn't possibly it's too far away. It couldn't possibly be the you know, it couldn't possibly be my victim. Right. It's kind of the same scenario here. Snavely's got this body in, in, in the form of a, of a Lockheed, potentially a Lockheed Electra aircraft. And um, it's but it's seventeen hundred miles away from where they're supposed to be. How do you explain that? Well, the only way you can explain that is, is by is, is sort of by trying you have this plane so now you've got to create a theory that can fit how this plane could have gotten there in the first place because at the end of the at the end of the theory you've got a potential bombshell piece of evidence and if if that bombshell piece of evidence happens to pan out then it's going to open up a whole another can of worms and so that's what snavely's been doing sort of the opposite of what everybody else has been doing he's sort of walking backwards and trying to fit trying to tell a story that fits that you know fits the piece of evidence he's got there so it's really fascinating. And, um, you know, and, and that's sort of the difference between like that theory and like Japanese capture. And I, I can imagine how frustrating that can be for people. But, you know, again, you've got these 200 eyewitnesses. If somebody had 200 eyewitnesses to a murder, would you not believe that? I mean, that's overwhelming evidence. 200 people saw this person get murdered. Are you kidding me? It's a done deal. It's a slam dunk. Well, maybe not. Let's go find some more, <laughs> you know, and that's kind of where we're at. So um, yeah, man. I mean, it's, 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 to me, it's all good. You and I are in a very privileged and, and, and special position. Uh, but we are also in the middle of the shit show at the same time. And we are, we are in the, we are having to deal with things that other people in our positions don't necessarily have to even worry about. And that's, that's sort of the, uh, the beauty and the difficulty lies within the same issue. But it's not privileged. We earned it. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, in the beginning, I would say uh, that, you know, I was probably in a, in a, in a privileged position because I, I just, 
I was a nobody. You know, I'm, I, I still believe that I'm, you know, in this case, uh, when you compare me to people that have been doing this for so long, I'm certainly not in that, in that rank. I've said it in the, in the opening of this conversation and I'll continue saying that I, I, but I feel like, yeah, we, we absolutely busted our asses on these cases. Um, we might not have been doing it as long. Granted, I'm the first person to tell you that, you know, seniority, absolutely. But it doesn't diminish the amount of sacrifice that we've given to these cases. Um, I talk about this in, in the book. Uh, you know, I have a little kind of a little opening piece in the book. And, and um, also at the end, this, this book and what I've, what I've done with this, this is all of me. It's the best of me and it's the worst of me. And, and putting this thing out, is sort of like a way for me to go, okay, like I'm, I'm good. I can take a break. I can breathe. I've, I've finalized my commitments, everything I committed to doing, I said I was going to do, I did um, because I don't care about anyone else that's watching. I care about one person that's watching this case. And that's my, I don't want to get emotional. That's my 12 year old kid. I care about that, that opinion more than anybody else. You could put any expert together. You can put any person together, any group together. My son has been watching this since I started it for the most part, like since, since it become really big and kind of become, kind of became its own thing. And I want him to be able to look back and say everything he said he was going to do. He did because I'm not the only one that made sacrifices. My son sacrificed for this to happen. He sacrificed time with me I'm locked in this room doing interviews, uh, which I, I don't get me wrong. I love what I do. I love it. I love it. I love it. But there's a dark side to it. There's a sacrificial side to it. You're married. You know how this works. You sacrifice time with your spouse. Your spouse falls asleep while you're upstairs fucking looking at D.B. Cooper shit uh, or, I'm, or I'm looking at Amelia Earhart shit. Sorry for the words. <laughs> but you you feel, uh, you know, there, there's a lot that goes into the constant hours and the constant research, um, listening to a book, an audio book. This is how nuts I was when we were doing the documentary shooting, uh, going through, we're shooting like 10, 11 hours a day. We get back to our hotel room. I would have an audio book in my ears and be reading another book while taking notes on both of them at the same time. Because I had interviews with people coming up that I had to do for either the podcast or we were going to interview someone for the documentary. Nobody, and I don't care who they are, will ever be able to take that work away from me and what I sacrificed and what I put into it. Um, so people that say, people that might argue against it, that maybe have personal opinions about me that might say, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm part of the problem or whatever. I'm sure you've heard that, you know, before it's, you know, you're part oh, of the problem. You're not part of the, fuck that, man. That's ridiculous. Bullshit. We're not part of the problem. We're, we're, we're part of the solution. And I, I will argue that part because I will tell people that like, look at, we've had, we've done over a hundred episodes of chasing your heart. We did, you know, 16 episodes of, of vanished. And um, some of those episodes are like four and a half hours long uh, a piece. So we put together, you know, your average documentary is what, two hours. Uh, you know, our, our, our episodes eat documentaries for breakfast. Like it's, it's not that documentaries are nothing compared to what we put in as far as research is concerned. Jen worked her, her ass off uh, in that year period, roughly better part of a year period that, and I've just plucked her from, I was like, you know, I, I wanted her as a, as a guest for a legal, for the trial by jury segment. And she, and you know, she got so popular right off the bat that people wanted to hear more from her. Um, and so she, she dove in with me and to her, to her credit, she worked her ass off for that. And uh, same thing with Ripper, same thing with Booth. Um, she wasn't a part of Cooper because she's just been so, so busy. 
but she worked on that and we worked on that together and um, no one will ever take that from us. No one will ever take that from you. And uh, that's just, that's just part of it. You, you touched on Amelia's legacy a little bit. And I started thinking, what would be her legacy today? How popular would she be if she had, had landed the plane in California? Like, Hey, I'm back. Yeah. That's a, that's an excellent question. And it's, it's probably my, my, my most favorite question because it, it, we gets, it gives us a chance to really speculate on what she would, what she might've done when she returned. I have always told people that her, her relationship with Purdue, I think would have been, would have likely been front and center for her. She was in a position to where she could take her already burgeoning lecture career and she could um, sort of uh, invert that, so to speak. And she could talk um, using a, a platform in a university as, as groundbreaking as Purdue was. Purdue has one of, still remains one of the only universities in the, in the country that has their own airport. Uh, they were very progressive when it came to STEM. Amelia Earhart was doing STEM before STEM was an acronym, you know, before it, it was even a thing. So a lot of people in STEM, you have them, they're littered throughout our project. Um, just women that are doing ridiculously amazing things today that say that uh, if it weren't for someone, they, they would look for someone in the early days of aviation and aerospace and the Amelia Earhart. I mean, there's, she wasn't the only one, uh, make no mistake. There was Florence Klingensmith, Ruth Elder, Ruth Nichols. There was, um, you know, countless others, um, you know, that were, that were like Poncho Barnes was a big one. She was really exciting. She was really incredible. Um, a lot of women in aviation, Bessie Coleman, God, I almost forgot Bessie Coleman. God help me. Um, that, you know, that did these wonderful, amazing things, but Earhart was an icon. And I think if she had returned, I think the iconography uh, on the legacy side would have just skyrocketed because she would have completed a world flight at the time that nobody had done around the equator. It was the longest path you could take. Uh, it was really, it was really it for her when it came to long distance stunt flying. Now, who knows if she would have changed her mind, but there's really, once you circle, once you circumnavigate the globe, there's nothing else you can do. The only thing she might've been able to do is to circumnavigate the globe in its entirety by herself with, with no, no Noonan, no navigation, maybe just learn Morse code and learn how to do all that stuff and try to do it on her own. 100%. Other than that, she had done everything, broken every record or set every record, um, and, and she had, she was a, you know, an editor for Cosmopolitan. She had her own luggage line. She endorsed, you know, dozens of products all over the world, all over the country. Uh, and she had that relationship with Purdue. So she would have come back. She would have really taken advantage of that relationship with Purdue, I think, in that platform. Her lecture fees would have gone off the charts. She was making uh, about $50,000 a year lecturing, which was about $300,000 a year now, um, if you looked at today's money or inflation. Um, so she would have continued to do that. She would have, she would have worked with people that produce students that produce, she would have molded the next generation. She was also very good friends with a woman by the name of Jackie Cochran, who, if you look up Jackie Cochran, Jackie Cochran was an aviator in her own right and icon in her own right. She actually helped found something called an organization called the WASP, which stands for women air force service pilots. And, uh, they were, uh, if you look up badass in the dictionary, uh, these, these women are there. Uh, they're, they're amazing women and they have their own historical record and their own place in history. I, I firmly believe that Amelia Earhart would have helped Jackie Cochran push the wasp as much as physically possible. Uh, their involvement in world war II, uh, eventual involvement in world war II and post-world war II. 
I think she would have been out there in front really helping. I don't think she would have like flown for them or anything like that, but I think she would have certainly used her, her image and her, uh, her iconography at the time to help push them in any way she could. Um, and, you know, same thing, Fred Noonan, uh, again, we, we talk about Fred Noonan, Fred Noonan wanted to navigate. He was newly remarried at the time that they, they went on, they embarked on this world flight probably would have had kids. Um, he probably, I know he wanted to do his own navigation school. He certainly wasn't in a position to do that. And the world flight would have sort of definitely given him a platform to do that. So I think these people would have been, uh, you know, aggressively involved in the future of aviation. Um, I think Earhart would have become uh, an icon. She probably would have lived to a very old age um, at that point, And she probably would have used, uh, you know, used that world flight to sort of turn the page in her career and, and, and do something even more unique or more special when it comes to influencing. And, and I think that's what she would have likely done. That's the path she would have likely taken after she returned. But unfortunately, we'll never know. All right. Now that you're done praising women, let's get to a <laughs> sexist question. Okay. What is the ratio of men to women in the Amelia Earhart community? 90%, over 90% men, less than 10% women. And really? I, I like that you brought that up. Yeah, I like that you brought that up. Um, I, I will point out a couple of women that are um, that are in the Earhart community, whether they're, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not, I don't want to speculate on how far involved they are, but they're, they're uh, really helping a lot with theory. Uh, first one is Jamie Lynn Bach, who is an archaeologist, and she actually has done a lot of work with Tiger on, ca- on the castaway hypothesis, and uh, she's an absolute rock star. Um, I would also tell you, um, there's a really, uh, a dear friend of mine, her name is Jill Myers. She's a, um, she's a speaker and she's a, she's a systems engineer and she's a, uh, just an amazingly brilliant woman. And she has helped, uh, Bill Snavely and been part of project blue angel and helped with, uh, trying to get Bill Snavely's theory off the ground and help him get traction, uh, to get him into the media and stuff. Uh, Jill Myers has been involved in that and, uh, you know, whether she wants to hear it or not, I got to I got to give a shout out to uh, to, to two people. Uh, one is uh, Jen, my co-host, who is sort of about to be thrust back into the Amelia Earhart world because she's she's a, a, a massive part of this book um, that's about to come out in, in July. And uh, so she'll she'll be I call her like this and Nick, she just like this enigma that just kind of like swarmed over this case and she had no iron in the fire. She had a task. Uh, you know, I, I asked something of her and she was able to, to, to do that um, in leaps and bounds, you know, uh, from what I even originally asked. And the other person I would say that is, is involved in the case, not to that degree or not to the degree of the women I've mentioned so far, but my wife, I'm going to be biased, but she, my wife was the backbone of chasing Earhart. Uh, she, no matter, no matter who, uh, how many people didn't like me, everybody loves Vanessa. She, she is, she's this, uh, just this, this beautiful, wonderful soul uh, that, that she, you know, she just gets people to, she gets people to smile. She gets people to talk. She gets people into a room and gets them to communicate and everything. And it's just, it's a really special ability that she's got that she doesn't even really realize she has. It just kind of comes natural. So she's helped um, a lot in what we've done in the last several years. But as far as like, uh, you know, as far as the ratio overall, it's, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of old dudes, a bunch of old white dudes, basically that are, that are fighting over this case and re- representing, you know, all the major theories. And I think that uh, this case, in addition to the Cooper case could use a little bit of female interjection, you know, and I think you're starting to see a little bit of that, a little I think bit. You're starting to see a little bit of, I'm surprised that 
the Amelia case is so weighted towards men. I would have thought just based on the fact that the central figure in that is like this front running, pioneering, badass woman. Yeah. That that would bring more. You know, I always say, yeah, if somebody asks me, I'll say, oh, yeah, the D.B. Cooper case is 90 percent men. That's me being very conservative. I think it's probably above 95 <laughs> yeah. percent men. Mm-hmm. But the thing, the reason I bring this up and I have a, several friends that do true crime podcasts, I'm sure you do as well. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. their audience tends to be 75 percent women. Yes. Wow. Isn't it? it? It is wild. What yeah, is it about it some of these unsolved mysteries where gruesome, horrific acts are so much more interesting to females than a plane oh. disappeared. A guy jumped out of a plane. This bank was robbed. Yeah. Where there is no physical violence. Right. I mean, there could be some physical violence toward the end of the Amelia saga, but that's not a hundred percent confirmed. Well, as soon as she took off, there were yeah. no, there was no violence to that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, <laughs> That's an excellent question. And, and, and you know, it's, I don't want to ascribe motivation for uh, for anybody, but I would say that, um, you know, w- you know, women, women are attracted to, to, to cases, um, I think, for the same reason that that men are. But um, this is a the Amelia Earhart case is sort of like a, a, a really um, it's, it's just, you know, it's just because it's so old, I don't think you'll find the same thing in Jack the Ripper, too. It's such an old case that people don't they just tend to kind of like it just doesn't it doesn't catch the interest as much um, on the disappearance side when it comes to women. Uh, you will find women in the case that have strong feelings on the disappearance side. Jen is Jen Taylor is is one of them. Of course, uh, she has her own theories and her own thoughts and everything. But um when it comes to true crime and, and women, the, uh, the the overwhelming numbers of women being involved in true crime and being fans of those shows, you know, I don't I don't really have an answer for that. I, I think it's just because, you know, um, murder is something that is obviously a horrific thing. And, and a lot of, you know, a lot of those cases need a female perspective. That's why you have so many female true crime hosts. Um, and I think that's a wonderful thing. You look at, you know, um, you know, you look at. Uh, Sarah Turney and what she's done with uh, disappearances and with, uh, you know, with the case for Alyssa Attorney, her sister. I mean, she has a personal involvement. So that's that's a good that's a good reason, as good a reason as any, obviously. Um, but you look at other shows like, uh, you know, like like Morbid and, and the girls have done some fantastic stuff over there. Color Me Dead with Nikki and Angel and what they did with that show. And you oh, know, I'm, I'm um, not critiquing they... the true crime genre or anything like that. I just find that right, so right. fascinating that it's such a wild swing. It's not like one is 62% and one is 48. Right. We've got yeah. 90% uh, you know, male audience over right. here. And over there we have 75% female, but they're both pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Uh, one is, I, I think it just because of, you know, because of the, the, the whole idea with true crime is, you know, maybe true crime cases need women. Um, maybe that's why they sort of are so, so attracted to that case. Those cases is, you know, they need that, um, you know, that they need that, that female touch on those cases, you know, women obviously have a lot more, typically speaking, have a lot more empathy, um, and can understand a lot more. Um, that's why, you know, we talk about this in, in jury trial selection for our cases and our shows that we do for these, these mock trials we do, you know, who would you want in the kit? You know, do you want, you know, how many women do you want in your jury? How many men do you want in your jury? 
you know, what age range do you want? What race do you want? You know, does all that matter? Because it does. They talk about that all the time in, in true crime cases and in, in just legal cases all around. I don't have the answer to that question. I, I think um, I think people that are people there's much there's some people that are much better suited to answer that than I. Uh, and I just I don't know. I don't know if it's because women are just naturally attracted to true crime. Uh, it's just something that is, it's interesting because it's like, it's this terrible thing. That's, uh, you know, that might just be the the case for us as Americans. It's this terrible thing that is not happening to us. So we're safe, but we can observe it and we could speculate on it all we want. And we can, we can passionately argue one way or another on it as much as we want. But, um, you know, that's an excellent question. And I, it's probably better suited for people that, uh, are in a better position to answer it than I. I don't know so, the answer. I don't either. know. That's that's why I asked. Yeah. I've asked a lot of my guests. Yeah, I don't know on the show. Yeah. What have What have you learned about that? I mean, have Have you gotten any interesting insight into that question so far? No, I've probably asked like forty people between do asking that yeah. question on the show and uh, off the show in private. And you know the range. Yeah. The answers range from like, oh, chicks love fear porn. Um, to, well, it's all about the empathy of caring for these people. But when I hear that explanation, usually it's like women don't care about DB Cooper because there's no, there's no female victim in the story. Okay. Well, if that's true, Mm -hmm. then well, Amelia Earhart, there is. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. And, you know, you, one could argue that there were female victims in the DB Cooper. If you look at Tina Mucklow and you look at Florence Schaffner, people that were on board that plane, that were essentially taken hostage. I mean, that's what, that, at the end of the day, that's what it was. Uh, even though he was, you know, he jumped out the back of the plane and he, you know, everybody got off the plane safely. I, one of my favorite aspects is, is the flight crew or the, not the flight crew, but the, the, the passengers had no idea they were being hijacked until they exited the plane. I mean, how, you know, how, how remarkable is that? But obviously, you know, they're of a different, it's, it's like two sides of a coin. You know, you had this, this flight crew, Mucklow included that were probably scared to death probably had major PTSD, you know, probably suffered a lot of, you know, and then, and all the fallout that has to do with this case and, you know, talking about it 50 years later now um, they're probably, you know, that that's, that's a victim um, I think. And so when they say like DB Cooper, DB Cooper wasn't really a victimless crime. I, I, I typically disagree with that because he did have victims and nobody, maybe nobody got hurt uh, physically and nobody lost their lives. Um, uh, except for Cooper, if you believe that he didn't survive the jump. But other than that, it, you know, that's it's a victimless crime, right? Well, you know, victimology is, is is something we talk about a little bit in our and we know a little something about victimology. And victimology is is all over the map, man. I mean, you can have all kinds of uh, you know different victims and you know different types of victimology. And and so, you know, yeah, it's it's an interesting question, and it's one that you could have a whole series about probably. Well, Tina Mucklow sold her life rights. Uh, so a movie could be made. Does that change your opinion of whether or not she's a victim? Uh, it doesn't change my opinion on whether or not she's a victim, but it does. It does. It is interesting that, you know, her opinion might have changed. Uh, you know, she might have softened on it. She might have she might have moved to a place to where uh, she could, you know, she could do something about this that, you know, she could sell her rights and make a movie. Um, some people that make those kinds of movies believe that like, hey, um, I want to tell, I want to tell my story. I don't want to have anybody else tell, I'm tired of having everybody else tell my story. Now I want to have a crack at my own story. And maybe she's gotten, she's arrived at a place that allows her to be able to do that. And that's why she's doing it. I mean, I, I can't ascribe motivation, but I can tell you that 
people do change. They do soften. You could say the same thing with 9-11 documentaries now and people that were victims of 9-11, uh, victims of Columbine, those mass shootings and school shootings and things like things change. Uh, you can, you know, your, your position on something can soften. You can feel a different way. You could wake up one morning and have an epiphany and think like, this is not going to hold me hostage anymore. I am now going to take control. I'm going to tell my story. This is how I'm going to do it. And people are willing to pay for that. And that's a big deal. And I think like, hey, if she's going to make some money off the story after all this time, and she's going to be able to tell her version of the story at the same time, you know, more power to her, man. I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's her life. She was the one on that plane. None of us were on that plane. She was on it. And, you know, she interacted with this guy and she likely, apart from whoever his family was, whoever Cooper's family was, once we find out eventually one day, uh, she knew him, she knows him or knew him better than anyone on the face of this earth. And she has a right to tell that story. So, you know, it doesn't really change my opinion. It just, it just kind of like, it just, it just gives me sort of a, uh, you know, I sort of take pause like, well, she probably just, you know, changed her direction. People do that all the time. I hope she got exactly $200,000. I would, I would ask for $200,001 just to, just to say I made a little bit more than he original. I'm sure she got way more than $200,000. So God bless her for that. I don't, you know, I don't have a problem with that. I think she's um, you know, she's obviously went through a remarkable thing and uh, anybody that can go through a remarkable thing and survive and live the tale, the tale, you know, they have every right to do that. So. All right, Chris, take me back to when you first decided, okay, I'm going to do some sort of a project on Amelia Earhart. Oh God. Uh, that was probably like 2008, something like that. Um, I don't even remember now, to be honest with you. I, I just started like, so this whole thing started and I have the list. I don't, I think it's here somewhere. I, I, I had an original list. I thought, well, podcasting had been a big deal. I was a big fan of a show called Astonishing Legends. Shout out to Scott and Forrest. We never came close to the quality of their show. I'll tell you, if you're going to listen to this and you've never heard of our show, you know, lower those expectations because it's not, nothing like Astonishing Legends. But um, I heard their, their, their three or they had, a, I think they did a two part piece really early in their run. And at the time I was thinking about like, how can I do this? How can I put this out? I would love to do a documentary. Sure. But that costs money and that takes time. It takes quality people that are you get involved. I mean, I obviously can't do that from nothing. Um, how do I go about this? Podcasting had been, you know, had had this big explosion and, and you know, now it's, I don't know, 30 million, 30 million podcasts or some, I don't know what the number is now, some ridiculous number. Every um, human on the planet the time, has two now. Right. You now can't only have one. You've got to have at least two. Right. So, you know, I was just thinking about like, what's, what's a good way to do this and it, podcasting. It just kind of, it just kind of, it just dawned on me. It's like, well, I can do this. Uh, this eliminates any geographical problem. I don't have to worry about that. Um, I don't have to go to anybody. Uh, I can just do this over zoom. Uh, or Skype or whatever I was doing at the time. And um, that's how it started. I thought, okay, let's take this list. If I was going to make a list right now of like 25 people I wanted to be part of the show, it's very, it's not, um, it's not unlike what you did. You know, my thought was like, if I could get, well, let's get the first show off the ground first. But if I could get like 10 episodes, man, that would be awesome. Um, and, you know, who could I reach out to? And so I made this list of people. Um, and I, I, you know, I just started reaching out to people after a while. Um, I, I had done a lot of pre-research on the project. Um, I had tried to, uh, I, I had read as many books as I could, uh, you know, I'd go to the library and get books and I, you know, I didn't have, didn't have a lot of money. So I didn't have the copies of my own at the time. I only had a couple of them, but, um, and you were a complete thought, okay, unknown in the community. No one knew your name. Right. No one knew who I was. Uh, every, everybody we reached out to, um, you know, I, I was doing it cold turkey, so nobody knew. 
uh, I reached out again. I'll give him a shout out. Uh, I out, reached out to a gentleman by the name of Todd Swindell, who I, I, I was looking at the case and I thought, you know, again, how could we do this differently? Where should we start? And I thought, well, everybody uh, thinks that the Irene Bolum theory is the most far-fetched theory. So let's start there. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll reach out. So he was kind enough to, he was cautious, but he was kind enough to have me come out and we sat down with me and I interviewed him. Um, and, you know, we have that footage and uh, it's in the archive. And um, when it comes to the podcast, I just started reaching out to people. I reached out to Rick Gillespie of Tiger. I reached out to Dr. Tom King, who was now formerly of Tiger, but was with Tiger at the time. And I reached out to a few folks in Japanese capture. I kind of cherry picked people. And I just like, I just kind of pinged everybody in the span of like 48 hours, if I remember correctly. And my thought, I would tell them, I was telling my wife at the time, I was like, Hey, um, you know, whoever reaches back out to us first wins. Like that's basically, that's how we, that's, that's the direction we go first. I, I would, if I had any regret, I would probably, I would probably change that approach because what happened was we, we started the podcast and we had recorded probably six or seven or maybe eight interviews or something like that. Um, and we recorded them in, the, in a tight span of like two or three weeks. Um, but we released and re recorded and released uh, Dr. Tom King first as episode one. And then we had uh, Rick Gillespie two episodes later on episode three. Um, and so what people started to see or started to hear from us is nothing but Tiger, nothing but Castaway in the first couple of episodes. And so that that made it difficult for me because people that I had reached out to that hadn't responded yet or were waiting maybe a little bit decided to uh, reach out and start to give me a lot of shit right off the bat. Like, oh, you guys are just sort of like a mole for Tiger or something like that. You guys are, you know, you're in bed with them and you're just, you're just using the, you know, kind of thing. And of course that couldn't be further from the truth, but I was a newbie to this and I, I, I didn't, it, you know, it, it was shocking and jarring at first to get those kind of responses and to have to sort of like spend 80% of my time saying, no, 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 no. That's not what's going on here. Let me reiterate what we're doing. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's basically how the project started. Um, and it, it, once it got enough traction to where we had like 10 episodes out or something like that, and we had a little bit of variety in the episodes, um, we, we started to, that started to cool down a little bit. Um, but you know, some people in some groups were much more difficult to attain than others. You can probably attest to that. Uh, for us, particularly Japanese, the people that represent Japanese capture was it was difficult to get, nail, nail them down to come on the show because, I mean, again, they believe so wholeheartedly in, in that story as being the ending that they don't even want to entertain anybody who talks to anybody else regarding any other theory. Like this is not a theory. This is truth. Right. I don't want my work to stand next to that person's work. Right. Right. Exactly right. And so, you know, us in that position, you and I uh, alike, we have to sort of learn how to navigate that on the fly and think, okay, how, what can I, what can I tell this person? How can I ease their, uh, their, their worry about this? How can I, how can I make them aware that I'm going to represent them in the best way possible as a third party. I'm not going to, this isn't a hit piece. We're not going to try to nail anybody. That's not what we do. Um, and so that was a very difficult part of the, of the project, but that was, that was really the birth of it. That was, that was how we began. That was the early days of the project. And it, it became this really grimy, gritty, sort of like we were traveling all over the country, like, you know, in via car and we're shooting the documentary at the same time we were doing the episodes of the show and we had, you know, we started to sort of, um, sort of, sort of gain a, a little bit of a name. I mean, again, I'm not going to, I don't want to overvalue what we, what we've done, but I just, you know, at the time we were, we were, we were sort of starting from the bottom and we wanted to sort of 
climb those rungs and get as high as we could to where we could be at least respected enough to where people could say, Hey, if you guys want to come on a platform, you know, this is the platform you'd want to come on to um, and, and discuss your theory. And, and that's sort of how it was birthed. And that's sort of how it became what it became. And, and, you know, now here we are, you know, what's the 2022 four four years later, uh, five years later, almost, uh, you know, 10 years later, when it comes to pre-research at least, you know, and, and we're still, still doing it. So, you know, that's kind of how it's, how it's, how it's blossomed. Your original idea for the show before the episode even came out, what did that look like compared to what it is now? Uh, it was always going to be an interview style show. I was always going to do it in, in the manner of, I, I didn't want to be the storyteller. I wanted to be the story navigator, if that makes sense. So oh, definitely. You know, yeah. So I am, I am this person. I'm, I'm not unlike the listener. I, I really am not. I'm, I'm engulfed in it, but anybody can do what we do if they put enough time and effort into it. Like, I don't want to, again, I don't want to, um, I don't want to dumb down what we've done. Uh, I don't want to dumb down what you've done. I don't, I mean, we've, we've put a lot of time and effort into this and it's, it's, it's the dedication that becomes the cutoff, right? It's, it's anybody can do this from a technical aspect. Anybody can grab a microphone and get on a zoom call and interview someone, record it, put it out. It's, that's nothing. Um, the problem is, is, is the dedication. And so I, I wanted to be this, this navigator uh, that would sort of guide the audience, like a narrator slash navigator that would guide the audience through my experience, talking to these people for the first time, interviewing them, finding out details about uh, a particular theory or a piece of the legacy. It's really important to understand that we, there were two sides to that coin. We did legacy episodes and we did disappearance episodes. And we did, we, were, we did a lot of, a lot of chasing Earhart had nothing to do with her disappearing. Uh, it really had everything to do with the 39 years that she was alive and what she did with the, with that time. And so, yeah, that's exactly what we did. And uh, so that show that, that original idea really hasn't uh, changed. Uh, it was really just going to become an interview style show. And I just, I wanted, it was all about giving the platform to that particular guest and making them the star of the show. So, okay. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to feed you questions um, based off of what I want to ask you and what I would want to hear if I was a listener. And you can answer those questions. And from those answers, we sometimes get bombshells that are dropped on us, or we get some really juicy pieces of information. And we also get their opinions and we get to learn more about these people that are investigating these theories. And it's, it's been really fascinating. And, and, and the interview style, one-on-one interview style of the show sort of, you know, after I had talked to everybody I could talk to, uh, it, it sort of grew stale on me. Um, you know, you, you got to challenge yourself and you got to change, change your, your, your format. And I didn't want to completely eliminate chasing your heart or the podcast, but I, I did want to do a different variation of it. And that's where vanished was born was, was out of this crazy idea and this crazy question I would ask myself. Um, and then, you know, how could I take that question and turn it into a show? And that's what we did. What was the reaction inside the community to chasing your heart? It was very lukewarm. Uh, very, very lukewarm uh, at best. So, it, you know, it depending, it depends on who we, who we featured. Um, you know, if we featured a given person that was disliked in the community or was a a standout in the community, one one direction or another, uh, we would hear it, um, and we would we would hear it via email. I'd get phone calls all times, all literally all times. I mean, sometimes I get phone calls like eleven thirty at night, like no joke, midnight sometimes as someone who was like in Hawaii that was listening to the show and wanted to just like give me their two cents, you know? Um, but I would, I would literally get, uh, we, we really were just lukewarm for the longest time. We had to, 
we had to build the reputation and the, the farther we got, uh, the, 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 the deeper into the archive or and deeper into the episode count that we got, um, the, the, you know, the, the, the more that, that, um, that reaction sort of softened a little bit and we became a little bit more like the respect level kind of started to, you know, uh, flatten out. And, uh, we, you know, we started becoming a little bit more of a respected sort of source in the community for the most part. Um, there are people that would probably hear this that would say he's full of shit and uh, I can't stand him. And that's, but that's, I mean, I can't, you know, you have to like, if, if there's one thing I've learned from this whole thing is you, you have to give up yourself. You have to give up uh, people's opinions of yourself. Uh, you have to, you have to stay true to the respect that you, you try to give everybody uh, stay true to what you originally wanted to do as much as you can, but you have to give up yourself from those attacks. You can't, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just a side effect. It's like, a, you know, it, it just comes with the territory. And um, I think it, it took me a long time to stop taking things personally. I prepared myself mentally and emotionally as much as I could uh, before that first interview dropped uh, way back when with Dr. Tom King, shout out to Dr. Tom King for being my first guest and, and, you know, being, being, you know, courteous to me, he always has been. Um, so like, I, you know, after that hit, um, I immediately started getting attacked almost, almost immediately. And, um, certainly after two out of three episodes were for one theory and we hadn't, we hadn't got a chance to really get off the ground yet. Uh, you know, people were, I mean, I was constantly getting shit on and attacked and beat down and everything for like months until we got like eight, 10, 12, 13, 15 episodes out. And then people were like, okay, they got a little bit of Japanese capture, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. We're starting to see this whole idea come together. Um, and we're starting to see it sort of flesh out. And I think it, it really, um, it really sort of came to a climax at the, when we did the two, when we did the, uh, the, the discussion panel in 2018 in Atchison at the Amelia Earhart festival, we did a, we did a discussion panel. We had like me and 16 or 17 other people on the panel. It was like the biggest discussion panel ever. And it, I, I went through a, a painstaking amount of work to, to, to make sure that we had representation from every major theory and from every part of her legacy across the board um, on that panel to make sure that we could, uh, with a moderator um, in an academic forum to make sure that we could pull off this panel. And I think after the panel hit, I think that's where we, we started to get a little bit more, uh, okay, people were starting to back off a little bit and say, okay, this, these guys are like legit when it comes to at least what they're trying to do. Now, whether we were successful, that's a whole nother question. But when it comes to uh, the attempt, I think the, the attempt became a lot more crystal clear after after that moment in that panel. What has the reaction been outside of the community, outside of the people who are writing books on Amelia? <laughs> Ridiculously loving, um, just amazing. Uh, you know, general the general audience uh, love. You know, uh, if they're in, invested in this, or they're a fan of Earhart, or they're just a fan of her legacy, or a fan of women in aviation. You know, take your pick. Um, overwhelmingly positive, and it's it's really because of those people that uh, that we keep doing what we're doing is because we keep talking about Earhart and everything is because uh they are hungry for it they are uh some of them are um uh you know researchers themselves like amateur researchers um and and they 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 have they're attracted to a specific case and they've taken on a specific case and they've adopted it as their own and they love it and they just they can't get enough of it and i think a platform like ours is an attractive one uh because um, you know, we, we get, they get a chance to take this one platform and they can see a little, they can get a, like a, a shake of every little bit of everything and every theory and, and every part of the legacy. And it's, it's again, not unlike what you do, you, you get, you get a good mix 
of everything that's out there. That's our job is to present a foundational understanding of this case and of everything that's contained within it. Um, and, and those people love it. Uh, they really enjoy it. And they, they followed us. I didn't think uh, I was, you can, if you ask Jen, you, she'll tell you, I was genuinely concerned uh, uh, to even start season two because of uh, vanished because I didn't know that anybody would want to hear me talk about anyone other than Amelia Earhart. And that's, uh, you know, so when we did Jack the Ripper and it became our biggest series we'd ever done, um, and these aren't like ridiculous numbers, but just, you know, it, it was like a, a significant spike, um, you know. Right, was, something you're proud of. Very, yeah, it was beautiful. It, it, it made me feel like, okay, it was, it's, it was emotional in, in a sense because it made you feel like, you know, people value um, not necessarily me as a person, I, I'm not, but they need to value the platform. And, and if I'm, I'm a representation of that platform, I'm an agent of that platform. That's what, that's what we are. So when they value that, uh, when they, when they, when they're excited about that and they want to hear what you have to say, that's exciting. And, you know, the same thing happened. We did John Wilkes Booth and the same thing. And then we did DB Cooper. And, you know, this is largely, I think, uh, it really has nothing to do with me. This is largely, uh, a, really a thank you to not only to you, but to everybody who got, who got involved in that little series we did. And, you know, it, it was our, it was our hottest series we'd ever done. Like it broke our, our download records for like a week for our, our weekly download records, our monthly down, download records. And it's now our, our, our most streamed show or listened to series. And that's, that's, I think that's, that's to the credit of not only the people that were involved, but it was, it's to a credit, it's, it's a credit to the, what the show, the, the, the type of people that the show attracts. We want to get, you know, the, the big, the biggest and the brightest names and the, the most important. So like, you know, when I, when I reached out to you and, and, and you came aboard and you were willing to do this uh, and I reached out to people like Tom K and, you know, um, it was important for me to like, well, with Cooper, let's do something a little bit different. Like let's get some of the giants but let's also get some of these, uh, some of the, what I call the new blood, uh, like Nikki Broughton, who's a, who's fucking phenomenal. He's like, the guy's amazing. He's, he's, he's broken so many things in the last, like, you know, he's, he's the future of this case for Cooper. Uh, Tessa D'Amico is the future of that case for Cooper. Um, you know, uh, peace, people that are in that group, um, you know, I, I think, I think even some of the giants would have to agree that it's really important. Um, Eric Eulis on, on our very own show said, it's really important to sort of step outside your own, personal feelings and, and it's important for you to pass down the knowledge and, and, and pass that forward because that's how these cases are going to live on and get solved. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, again, a very long way to answer, but yeah, that's, that's really important. And I think the, the overwhelming, the overwhelming, uh, positive response from the general audience has been, uh, it's what keeps the show going. It's what keeps us doing what we do. Your show's great, especially like your production value <laughs> and the sound. It's it's really good. The DB Cooper series, even though I do a show about DB Cooper, I absolutely loved listening to that. I remember just oh, sitting you. sitting in my basement in the dark listening to it. Like this is a great yeah. show. And I listened to it like the first night. Yeah, well, that means a lot. I mean, we you know that was purpose purposefully done. You know, we tried to you know, we we with Cooper, we'd done it. We'd done a couple of things. We changed our approach a little bit. Like, you know, the, the biggest thing is we, we dropped the entire series on one night, but the, you know, the 50th anniversary only comes once. And we figured like, if we're going to do this, let's just record everything and just drop it all and give it all to him on one night and give him like eight hours of Cooper, you know, content on one night. And say, so, you know, let's, let's try it. And we did it and it worked out. And, um, 
you know, again, I, I thank you publicly. That's largely to your credit and to the people who joined us on the show. I mean, if, if you take the guest list out of the show and it's just me sitting there rambling about the case and running off suspects, no one's going to want it. That's going to get old real quick. It's, it's, it's the new voices uh, for new cases for our audience because, you know, we'd never covered Cooper. This is a new case to them or it's a case that they don't know a whole lot about other than the pop culture references. Um, and we got we get to step into the we got to step into the vortex and take, you know, cherry pick sort of the, the biggest and best people from that vortex to tell us this is why this case matters. This is why it's so important. This is why I've been so attracted to it and why, um, you know, why people still care so much about the fate of D.B. Cooper and what happened to him. And we try to do that with everybody. We collaborated with um, the guys at, um, at 1865, who, again, the podcast of record when it comes to Lincoln and Booth and the Civil War and Edwin Stanton and Andrew Johnson and all those characters, um, all the conspirators that were involved in the assassination of Lincoln, everything. I mean, they collaborated with us. This, this is a show that's got like, I don't know, 10, 15 million downloads or some re stupid, ridiculous number. And it, they, you know, they, they collaborated with us. They didn't have to do that, but they, they were, uh, you know, um, Eric Archilla and Stephen Walters guested on our round table and sat with me and Jen and Dave Taylor and, we had a collaborative discussion about what we had just covered in the, in the whole booth theory that we had covered. And, you know, the mind reels, like we get involved with wonderful shows like that, wonderful shows like yours. And we get to sort of like step into these other shows and step into these other experiences for a series. And then we get to step away from those shows after that. So we get like that, you know, Earhart's my, my, my blessing and she's my curse, but at the same time, I could step away and I can actually go back and, and I can, I can come back to Earhart whenever I want. And um, it's still going to be there. And that's, that's kind of the beauty of what we've done with the show is we get to step in and sort of like, I like to say like, you know, we, we can't, the show is like us cameoing in other people's shows, essentially um, Cooper vortex that, you know, our series on Cooper was essentially a Cooper Vortex episode, uh, like a series. That's really what it was. Cause we took everybody, including yourself that were so kind and gracious with the time. And we had them guest on the show, but really, I just, I almost felt like we were guesting on your territory. That's what really what we're doing. We're stepping into your territory and you're guiding us. And, and uh, you know, that's, it's the most fun thing about the whole show. We never know where we're going to go. We never know who we're going to get involved with. We never know what Avenue it's going to take or what, uh, what area it's going to go walk down. Um, but it, 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 it's different every time and it's fun every time. And uh, we get to sort of visit these areas and, and um, it's like going on a vacation, coming back. It's kind of the same thing. Here's a tough question. Do you like to listen oh, to right. your own show? Oh, uh, no. Um, not because I don't, I don't like to hear my voice or anything like that. It's, it's not, it's not, it's really just much more reserved than that. It's just because I listen to the show so much during editing that by the time I put the show out, I've heard it eight to 10 times backward and forward. Uh, same thing with the book. I'll likely never read my own book uh, because I edited that. I did, I did a over a dozen edit passes before I sent it to the publisher and I'll do one final edit pass with the galley copy that they send me um, at some point. So like by the time that happens, I just, I'm so like, I'm so done with it. Uh, it, it was really cool with, with Cooper, like, you know, which obviously we, you know, we dropped it on the 50th anniversary and that was all fun, well and fun. And, and all that excitement was there and it kind of helped us. I think it helped us boost the numbers a little bit, but it was really cool. Um, I remember telling my wife, it was a wonderful thing to put all that work and effort into it for just, you know, just a few months, really. It wasn't that long. But to see the feedback, I love the feedback. I love getting the feedback. And if it's positive, who doesn't love positive feedback? Of course, it strokes your ego, that helps you, 
that makes you feel good about what you've done and everything. And that's great. And we had some negative feedback too. We have negative feedback on everything we do. I think negative feedback is, is just as valuable as positive feedback if you know what to do with it. But I feel like, um, yeah, I mean, by the time the show drops, I don't, I, I, I've washed my hands with it and I'm just kind of like, okay, this is now for everybody and they can take it and do with it what they please. And, and that's, um, that's what I do. That's, that's typically how it works with me. See, for me, I don't edit any of my own stuff. Russell does yeah. that. So I'll right. do the interview. And then after the interview, I'll record a quick intro and outro. And then I take all three or four or five of those files, depending on how the interview went <laughs> and, and ship it off to Russell. And then uh, a few days, a week later, I get an episode back. I'll listen to it. And yeah, I can only think of like, there was maybe one episode where I was like, Hey, I want you to change this, but Oh, actually right. I have a good story about that where, so yeah, let's hear it. When the show first started, I did my first mm -hmm. five interviews and I was like, you know, I'm a genius. I can edit this show on my own. <laughs> That's right, no problem. Right. And so right. I went and drove around Washington, did five interviews, came back to my house with, with five interviews on an SD card. And I tried to put it together. It wasn't really working. I, it was taking me way longer than it should. It wasn't sounding how I wanted it to. I was getting frustrated. Yeah. And then Brian Woodruff, who was one of my first five interviews, he, he posted, I believe it was on Facebook. He posted on Facebook something to the effect of, um, I met a man who made a lot of promises about D.B. Cooper and about a show that was going to come out. But it turns out the man was nothing but a liar. And mm. I knew like he was talking about me. He clearly he was talking about <laughs> me. So I printed right. that out and clipped it on the edge of my monitor. Just that quote that I'm a yeah. piece of shit. And I sat there yeah. and I looked at it for a while and I was like, I got to figure something out. So I reached out to Russell. We had worked together before and we weren't really friends. But I knew yeah. he went to school for audio video production. So <laughs> yeah. I was like, hey, man, um, we used to work together. Do you want to do this project? And he was like, sure, let's do it. Uh, so that yeah. worked out well. And then I was yeah, like, sure okay, did. well, um, I have these five interviews for you. I want a cheesy Unsolved Mysteries vibe. Go. And I gave, gave him the stuff. He gave it back to me. And I remember listening to one of the interviews and I remember that there was like a 20 minute section where it was all inside baseball gossip inside the Cooper mm -hmm. vortex. Mm -hmm. And I get the file back from Russell and it's completely gone. And I was wow. immediately, I was like, what the fuck, man? Like that part yeah. was so juicy and good. And you just cut it all out. And he yeah. was like, Darren, you think that part is juicy and good because you know all these people and you know what that what's going on inside that community. The listener doesn't mm -hmm. know that and doesn't care. And it just makes all of you look bad. Like he was coming from mm -hmm. the outside. And uh, I yeah, was like, right. Okay. Okay. I see what you're saying there. And it was totally 100% the right decision because if I right. would have yeah. gone down that route in my first few episodes, I guarantee there would be a dozen people who would have never come on my show. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's an excellent point. Uh, you know, we all have those people, right? I think, and and that's, you know, my wife is, you know, she's my partner and my, my not only in life, but just in the show and this pro- process. And she's told me I'm more than one. And it, it's, it. I don't know how you feel about this. It's, it, it's, you have to, again, you have to take your, you have to remove your feelings and you have to remove your own ego out of the equation. And you, if you don't, uh, it's going to be rough and you're going to learn to do it really fast because people will listen to, you're so close to it that, you know, you, you think it's all fantastic and people will listen to it that are not close to it and will think, Hey, you can cut, you know, this section entirely out and uh, you don't need to have this because it actually hurts the overall narrative. Uh, just, just like he had said to you um, I've had that happen uh, multiple times. And I still, I mean, I, I've had to relearn that for the book because even though the book is, is 99.9% of it is a written transcript of season one. It's, it's people, what people had asked for, but we have, you know, other stuff in it and commentary in it and stuff. But I, I had to had, had to go through the same thing. I had people would, would read it and say, this part sucks. Like you got to rewrite this part or this part is like, it doesn't make any sense. There's too many compound questions here. Too many compound sentences. It doesn't read well. Um, you have to, you have to straighten yourself out. You have to, uh, you have to make yourself, um, immune to those kinds of things because uh you know if if you have too much of an ego involved in your own projects and it's natural i mean it's 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 not easy to do um but i think the more you you um expose yourself to that i think the better off you're going to be so for creators that are uh potentially listening to this that want to maybe start their own thing on regardless of, i don't care what it is uh you have to you have to you have to be in love with the process and you have to be in love with the feedback uh, the feedback is your friend, uh, and and negative feedback is is more crucial than the positive feedback because you know positive feedback. I mean, every, anybody can just stroke you and give you positive feedback as much as you want, and that's that's not that's not going to help you grow. That's not going to help you change. That's not going to help you make things different. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you you experience some of the same stuff, and luckily for you, it changed sort of the outlook on the show. And uh, we went through the same, very same thing. You know, we had, we had changed stuff and I was like very defensive, very defensive about like my own personal. So like, no, this is cause it's mine. It's my baby. It's my thing I'm putting out into the world and uh, nobody else has uh, a, a, a head on their shoulders. That's, that's as good as mine. And I know best you have to, you have to get rid of that right off the bat. And it's, it's very difficult to do. And it's an active, it's an active process. I mean, I, I don't know if you, I don't know how you feel now about it, but for me, I feel like I, I, I'm still defensive. I still, I'm still quick to defense and I have to like, Oh, wait a minute. This, this is, this is coming from a loving space. Let's, let's look at this. Maybe this does suck. Maybe this could get rewritten. Maybe this could be approached a different way. And um, you know, for anybody tackling anything, that's, that's just, you know, you have to be in love with that process. Otherwise you're going to fail nine times out of 10, you're going to fail. If you're going to give advice to your nephew, your cousin, your sister-in-law, they're starting a podcast tomorrow. Yeah. What would your advice be? Well, that's, that's one, that's one big piece of advice. Probably the biggest piece is, is learn to learn to accept that you don't know the best practices. You might not know, uh, you know, really the best way to go forward on a certain thing or to present a certain thing. I think if you can, you know, if, if, if you can learn to love that process and learn to love the feedback and embrace it, I think you'll be a lot, a lot better. Also, don't on the flip side of that, don't think too much about it when you start it, just just do it, you know, just do it. Um, because 
you know, you're, you're going to think yourself into a corner. And a lot of times you're going to think yourself into a, a, a reversed decision on something that you wanted to really do. Don't compromise your, your beliefs stick with, you can stick with those beliefs while still embracing that feedback. But at the same time, uh, just grab a mic and start recording. Start ta- if you're passionate about something, that passion will bleed through. It'll be obvious. It'll be apparent. Um, you won't be able to contain that passion. And I think people that listen listen to you and hear what you're doing, uh, it might take a little while, but they'll get that passion. And and also, uh, I think from a practical standpoint, surround yourself with people that are smarter than you are when it comes to doing what you're trying to do. Uh, I leaned very heavily on Scott and Forrest. They don't, I don't think they even fully understand that this book never happens without them. Um, when I reached out to Astonishing Legends, they're this, uh, again, and these guys have no egos, um, but they're, they're this monstrous show. I mean, it's, it's a big show. Um, you know, they have millions of listeners, millions of downloads. It, they're, they're, they're excellent at what they do. Um, and they're willing to help people. And they, they, they were able to take me in and they gave me pointers. They gave me, they gave me thoughts about, about the process and about podcasting and about uh, answered my stupid practical questions. I had to ask Forrest and, and Scott about stuff. And to their credit, I mean, I, I love those guys they are like brothers and I, I can never say enough about them. So I would always say like, surround yourself with people that know more than you do. Um, educate yourself, read as much as you can on a given subject. If you're going to go deep on something, um, there's a difference between podcasts that will do like a 20 minute episode on a topic and podcasts that will do a five hour episode, or, or if you're going to dedicate God, God help you. If you're going to dedicate an entire series or, or an entire show to a specific topic, regardless of what that topic is, um, read, 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 know your stuff. Um, when you're asking questions to people, if you're interviewing them, um, make it worth their time, you know, I mean, interview, make them, make them feel make them feel comfortable, make them feel relaxed. I think that's another reason why people like to come on our show is because, you know, it, Vanished is a very difficult show to, to, to guest on in, in, in a certain respect, but um, we try to keep that atmosphere as relaxed and as fun as we can. At the end of the day, we're doing a mock trial. We're having fun with this kind of stuff. Um, so we need, to, we need to get sort of get in bed with people that understand that concept and can kind of embrace it. Like Drew, Drew, all in. I mean, he was just like, hell yeah, man. Um, I'm down. I'm ready. Like you just let me know like when, when, and when to be there and I'll be there. And he was more than gracious with his time and his, and his um, collaboration with us. So like surround yourself with people who know more than you do get like-minded individuals involved in your inner circle. Um, It's always really important for that. And then just, just take that leap. It it all starts with a leap of faith. If you don't think you can do it, you absolutely can. Um, I am living, breathing, walking proof that you can. I knew nothing about podcasts. I still know very little about podcasts other than just how to put my own out. Um, but I, I'm doing something that I really love to do. And at the end of the day, like if I step away from it for too long, I, I miss it. And I, I get, I get sad. I was like, there's a, there's a piece of me that misses like sitting down with people like you recording, talking shop, discussing cases, having fun. That's where the breakthroughs lie. You know, not only in your, in the, in the case that you're covering, forget about that, but just in the, in, in the inspirational breakthroughs that could come from stuff like that, like talking to you on the phone the first time, like got me more hyped to do Cooper talking to Dave Taylor, got me more hyped to do booth um, hearing Jen's passion about like the Jack, the Ripper case and, and how, how horrible it is and how we need to like, we should cover it. Cause we owe responsibility to these women that, you know, were his victims. Like that made me want to do the, 
you know, the show more. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's, it's, if, if you get around people that have that infectious spirit, um, you know, uh, the, the, the ideas will flow and things will happen and, uh, you will come up with stuff that you never in a million years dream that you could come up with. And, um, you know, and you'll get, you'll get love for that and you'll get a certain respect for that. And that's, um, that's the greatest part of what we do when people come out and say, I heard your show. Uh, I think what you guys did was amazing. I loved it. I learned a lot. Uh, I had people say that it was, you know, people did series we've done like, oh, you guys have put out like the Bible for this case and everything like that's, I mean, people don't have to say that stuff, but it's beautiful to hear and it makes you feel like you're, you're doing something right. So do those things, surround yourself with people who love what they do and, and don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, don't be afraid to ask. You told me a story on our show, how you asked, you know, when I was asking you the same question about how you got into the show and podcasting and everything. And, you know, it, it, people don't have. Uh, a, a very different story when you get down to it. Like they, they were inspired by a certain show or it's an, an idea or something. And they, um, they picked the brain of somebody that they knew or that they respected. And um, everybody's got a story of somebody sort of reaching down and giving them a hand and saying like, Hey, I'll, I'll help you get started or I'll help you. You know, this is what I would tell you to do. This is what I would have told my, this is what I would have done differently. If I would, if I could start over stuff like that, you know, all basic things I know, but you know, that's, that kind of stuff breeds, uh, you know, inspiration breeds productivity and creativity. And, uh, you know, that's a wonderful thing when you get a room full of idiots together that just love something specific and they just start <laughs> talking and going at it and it just gets real exciting. And everybody gets all, all hyped up and they want to go out and just solve this case. Uh, like, okay, we'll get this shit done in 48 hours. No problem. Let's, you know, like, you know, ridiculous stuff like that happens, but it's fun. Those are the kind of environments you want to in, in you want to put yourself in when you're creating anything, um, and podcasting is certainly no different than that. Well, now that we know how to start a podcast, how do I end the Cooper Vortex? Huh. I, I don't have an answer for that. For Earhart, I'll tell you. So I'll tell you for chasing Earhart um, for the original podcast, and you know the documentary. We still have all of our documentary, and we could we could talk all night about this and what ha- what's happened with the documentary and it hasn't happened with the documentary. It's it's been a a, a huge roller coaster ride for me, but um, I just, you know, I just, I missed my son. I missed my life and I missed, I missed having, you know, um, those, those wonderful moments with my wife being in the moment. Um, I still struggle with that. My wife and I have conversations like that all the time. Sometimes she has to reel me back in um, and God love her for that. I think that's, you know, that's one of the wonderful things about her, but I, I just, I just had to make a decision. You know, I, I just had to cold Turkey it. Um, and it was hard. And I, I always told myself like, look, if there's ever breaking news on the case or anything like that, like we could always come back and, you know, you can always come back to it. Like the, the beautiful part of what we do is it's in an archive. It's there forever. So your record is always there and you could always come back. And I think for me, I had grown tired of working as aggressively on the case as I had, I had given everything I had in it. Um, and, and now with this book, I, I, I truly believe that I've reached the end of the line with this book. I feel like, you know, it's like, it's, it's like a navigational solution. Like we talk about this with Noonan all the time. Like he, he reached the end of his solution. Like this was it. And this is where you arrive. This is your destination. The book is sort of like a version of what my original vision for the documentary was. It, it basically was you know, we spend the first 150 pages or so of the book discussing her legacy and why, you know, we talk about all the different aspects of her life. And, and uh, then we get into the, the disappearance and it gets really hardcore at that point. But 
for the chasing Earhart, it's like, you know, you could go on forever, but you have to sort of, you have to come up with a, an ending, a finite date that you can just say, okay, this is it. For me, it was like a hundred episodes. Okay. If I make episode a hundred, you know, that's a good round number. Like I'm, I'm a big, I'm really anal about like numbers and like, you know, so I'm like, okay, that's a good hundred episodes. It's great. That's far more than any documentary could ever put together. That's far, you know, like we, we should, we should have an imprint here on this case after that point. And if we don't, it's time to leave. And um, I have gotten to the point where, look, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be 40 uh, this September. And um, I've had, uh, you know, multiple heart issues and, and, you know, I have multiple um, procedures and stuff before I've turned 40. I, I, I don't want to, I just decided I don't, I don't want Earhart to be my life. She's an aspect of my life. I, she's like the other woman in my life. She always has been, um, you know, I always tell people like you married twice, married to Amelia Earhart and married to my wife. Like that's, that's kind of what it, ha- what it has to be. If you're going to get into something as deep as I've gotten into it. But I always tell people, you know, I, I just, I, I'm, 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 I don't want to say I'm too old for it, but like, I, I don't want to waste uh, some of my best years on, on looking at a case. I don't want to look back when I'm like 70 to like, God, I just, I, I looked at that for like 40 years and we're in the same position we were in, you know, like I want to, I wanted to come in, make a dent, make an impact and then exit and, um, and pass it on to people that are the future of this case. People like, uh, you know, Sean Keats from our group, who's done Japanese capture stuff, people like Chris Hare, there's nobody on, I think that's more suited to be the captain of the ship than Chris Hare and, and his, his, his thoughtfulness and the, the, the way he loves and approaches this case is really infectious. And it's, it's, it's more than I, I could ever, I could ever imagine. So, you know, I think it's a combination of you have to make that hard decision and you have to be confident in leaving it in the hands of people who, you know, will, will, will represent this case in a respectful and, and loving way, because it, it all has to come from a place of love. I mean, otherwise, why would we be doing this? Uh, you love the DB Cooper case. You're, 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 you're fascinated by it. It's an, you can't let go of it. That's a place of love. Love and obsession is a very thin line. Uh, but, it, but love is in that equation. And, and so for me personally, I, I, I love Amelia Earhart. I think she's, she was a, what she did for this, uh, for aviation and aerospace and what she's done for uh, the iconography that she's established for herself on, on, on the imprint of history is never going to be touched uh, regardless of who's right. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Um, what matters is the 39 years that she lived. So for me, it was a combination of all those things. Do we have people to pass this down to, or to, 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 you know, allow them to turn the page and keep it going. And is there a finite ending here? And I just, I just had to cut that cord and that's, that's what I did. And I I think it's, I'm going to be cutting another cord again, you know, like I'm going to separate further, separate myself from, from the case. I think after the book comes out and I'm going to take some time off, but who knows? I mean, if something breaks in the case, I mean, that's the problem. You can never just like, okay, well, that's cool. Like, you know, you can't give as much as you've given to these cases like we have and just not be interested anymore all of a sudden. Like I said, it's very rare that that happens. Um, there's only a couple of different occasions that you could you could chalk that up to. So for me, I just had to cut it. And I think that's what you'll have to do as well. I mean, if you really want to like step away from it, do something else, uh, wean yourself off of it, whatever you got to do, um, you know, works differently for everybody. But for me, if I couldn't cut it cold, I'd be doing this when I'm 70, 80 years old. And I just, I can't, you know, I, I can't, I can't live with that. I can't, I can't wrap myself. I can't wrap my heart around that. Um, you know, I should have been dead by now with everything I've dealt with, with the heart stuff and everything. I, sh- I you know, unless I'm here for a reason, I don't know what that reason is. Um, 
and I, I, since I don't know, I'm going to, I'm going to go with my son and go with my wife and basically just live my life and have my, you know, um, have my life is filled with as much love as I can, you know, I, I, I know that's a really crazy kind of a, a strange, uh, you know, long winded answer, but, um, everybody has to decide for themselves, you know, and it's, I can just tell you what worked for me and it's, it might not be the same for you, but it's, it's going to be tough. I'll tell you, you'll miss it when you cut it out, when you record that final piece and you know, you've got nothing in the can, you know, you've got nothing in the, you know, down the, down the, uh, down the road for that. It's going to be weird. Uh, when you get up one day and you're like, shit, we haven't recorded a new episode in six months or a year. Um, and we're kind of, we're kind of doing that with Vanish. We're sort of restructuring and reevaluating like, okay, how are we going to do this? You know, Jen's got a life. She's about to get married. Uh, she's got, you know, major real life cases that like real life implications, like, you know, she does criminal law uh, that are on her plate. Um, how much time is she going to be able to give realistically to a show like this? To, for what we do, um, it takes a lot of time, you know? Um, and so we have to sort of, we're sort of in the middle of restructuring how we're going to approach the show. Like, are we just going to, you know, when, when Cooper dropped, we hadn't recorded in like the better part of a year. We just, we didn't promote it. I mean, I think I promoted it on our own social media and our stuff, which is a very small reach for maybe a few weeks. But when it happened, you know, because of your guys' involvement, everybody that helped push it and promote it, I mean, the thing lit up and it's like, oh, all those listeners that you left a year ago, they're still lying in wait. Like they still want to know. So when you come out with new stuff, you'll get your listens and you'll get your people, you'll get your built-in audience. And so like, I think if Cooper's proven anything for us, uh, you know, for what we do as a show, I think that that's it's proven that like we can step away for a year, come back and record. And you might find that you'll do that. You might find that you'll step away for a year or two and come back and record. You might just get that itch again, or something might happen that you obviously want to cover. Um, it might force you back into it. But if, if, if not, you might just get that itch. Maybe around the 55th anniversary, maybe around the 60th anniversary, you'll reignite the show. And, you know, who knows, right? But it's part of you forever. You have to embrace that. You just have to. I mean, I, I'm, an, I'm the Amelia Earhart guy. All right. So, okay. You know, you're the D.B. Cooper guy. Um, there's obviously a lot more to us than that. But you have to, you have to embrace that. Otherwise, you're just going to be stuck forever. It's like we're talking about opiates or something. It's like, yeah, this is going to be a part of you forever. You'll always be addicted and you'll, you'll always we, it is. it, but you just got to stay away from it. It's like a drug. You're right. You're exactly right. It is like a drug. You know, anything that's worth anything is, though. Anybody who's great at anything, and I'm not saying that I'm great, so just for people who are listening to that, but anybody who, who uh, just for lack of a better term, who is great at anything, um, anybody who just cannot let something go, it's a drug to them. And some people shoot up. We shoot up with historical mystery. That's what gets us turned on. That's what gets us exciting. Um, we you know, shoot stick up with that historical, historical mystery. We give, give me that historical mystery morphine and inject it into my veins. I mean, that's, that's what it is. We can't let go. And it's really the reason why people still talk about Amelia Earhart in the first place. There's no period on the end of that sentence. There's no period on the end of the sentence for D.B. Cooper. He dives out. He jumps out the back of the airplane. We don't know what happened. It's all a thousand percent speculation at that point. Cause we don't know. Cause we don't have an ending. We have no clue. And same thing with their heart. You know, she's, she's desperately crying for help. She's uh, you know, about to crash in the ocean, uh, uh, you know, potentially. And um, her last words, her, her last word was the word wait. And uh, that was the last word that anybody ever heard her speak. And it was, it was spoken 
to Leo Bellarts, who was the chief radio man on the Itasca. And we, I never met, ne never had the honor of meeting him, but we were able to use some of his archived audio and bring him into the fold and bring his testimony into the show and bring him back to life essentially. And that was a, I love doing stuff like that. That was the last word anybody ever heard is the word wait. And we're still waiting. Speaking of last word, this last question here will either make you look like a genius or a total dummy. Huh. Um, Probably the latter. Would you mind telling us the final score of the Super Bowl? Well, my 49ers got beat. So um, I'm pulling for the Bengals. My brother-in-law is a uh, shout out to Tim Brown, my brother-in-law, who uh, is a massive, massive Rams fan. He is overjoyed. I think it's going to come down to a field goal. Um, I think it's going to be like within three points. I don't think anyone's going to run away or blow it out. And I think it's going to be, let's say uh, the, the, the twenties have been pretty hot. Let's say 24, 21 Bengals, just because I'm pulling for the Bengals. It's been since what, 80, 85 or 88 when they actually lost to the Niners in the Super Bowl, the Dwight Clark, uh, catch the catch heard around the world. You know, um, that was the last time they came. I'm a fan of my guys can't go. I'm a fan of seeing somebody new win it. And it, it, the Rams have won it fairly recently, um, recently enough. But, so the Bengals would be cool to, that's why I was so happy with the chiefs when they won it, they hadn't won it in forever and they got a chance to finally win it, which was cool. So I'm, I'm pulling for the Bengals. I'll say 24, 21 Cincinnati. All right. Well, um, I hope you're right for your sake, but uh, I kind <laughs> of right. hope you're wrong right. because I have right. money on the Rams minus six and a half and under 48.5. Well, let's hope you score big. I, I, you know, I, yeah, I don't know, man. You know, this, the playoffs have been hugely exciting. I, I think we can all agree. This has been probably the most exciting postseason we've had in an awful long time. Like it's, oh, it's really yeah. been crazy. That Bills Chiefs game, that was to me, that was a Super Bowl in my eyes. That was the, probably the one of the most amazing games I've ever seen. And, uh, you know, just the, the, the 49ers, uh, you know, topping the Packers in Green Bay, that was just like we've had some beautiful moments in the postseason. So let's just hope for me, for my sake, I just hope the Super Bowl is supposed to be the coup de gras, right? So I hope the Super Bowl lives up to the hype that the postseason has put forward on it. And, uh, you got some, you got some great teams, man. You got some great, you got a couple of great QBs. Um, I think uh, I, his name escapes me. I know you have Matthew Stafford for the Rams. Uh, who's the quarterback for the Bengals? What's his name? Burrow, um, Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow. He's the future of the league. Uh, one of the future quarter. I mean, he, these guys are, it's cool to see Stafford have this sort of like this Cinderella story, you know, being in Detroit all those years and coming back and actually first year out of Detroit, he ends up going to the Super Bowl with the Rams. Like that's, you know, you can't write that kind of stuff. That's really cool. And, you know, Burrow is, you know, the kid's a rock star. He's going to be really great. I think if he stays healthy, uh, people like Burrow and people like Mahomes and people like Josh Allen, you know, that's the future of the league, I think, you know, from the quarterback position. And you've got some remarkable talent, you know, in the NFL right now. Debo Samuel, I'm a Niner fan, so I'm going to I'm going to be biased. But God, that guy is just Jesus Christ, man. That guy just came out of no. I mean, he's came out of nowhere. He's he's amazing. He's going to have a hell of a career like we're into some really fun, fun stuff on a quick side note, before we, we wrap up, I have a bet with my cousin who is a, a long time, uh, 49er fan. He got me into the 49ers when I was a kid and uh, we've been fans ever since I think, and I'm, I, if you, if, if this happens, you heard it here first, I think Brady comes out of retirement and ends up in a 49er uniform next year. I think even if it's for one year, I think with what they've done with Trey Lance and bringing him on and trying to nurture him, you know, trying to nurture him under Garoppolo. And now Garoppolo looks like he's exiting. 
Uh, Garoppolo trained under Brady. Brady's born in, in, in California. San Francisco was where he always wanted to play. Um, I think he doesn't need any more rings. I mean, unless he wants to go for one more, if he thinks the Niners are legit, I think he gets a combination of money and the, the pull of always wanting to play for his hometown team. I think he ends up in a 49er uniform next year. And so I'll, I'll call that right now. And I'll say that if he does, you heard it here first, 49er, <laughs> Tom Brady. Next. All year. right. Well, if, uh, if people want to find your work or they want to reach out to you to tell you that that Tom Brady 49ers theory was totally whack. Um, <laughs> it probably is, but I'm hoping anyway, I'm hoping I'm hoping. Uh, yeah, man, you can find us. I mean, the show is pretty easy to find. So there is another podca- podcast called the vanish, which is a spectacular show. Um, and, uh, we are just vanished by itself. Um, you can find us, um, at, at vanished pod on uh, Twitter and on Instagram and on, uh, God help me on TikTok. We haven't done anything really on TikTok yet, but we probably will start doing some historical stuff on TikTok eventually. Um, but, um, we're also facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash vanished, uh, pod is, is our Facebook group. You can just, just search us on Facebook and you'll, you'll see the page for the show. You'll see the group. You can join the group. Come on over, talk with us. Um, tell me how ridiculous I am. Um, share some Earhart stuff. Um, and of course we talk about Cooper and everything, you know, all the other cases we've covered in there and, uh, yeah, man, just, uh, vanishedshow.com is, is the hosting site for the show and we're on audio boom and we're on every major podcast platform. And hopefully we'll have some new content coming soon. Um, we have, like I said, this book, uh, the book is called rabbit hole, the vanishing of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan. And it's going to come out. Uh, it's being released via beyond the fray publishing, uh, G Michael Hoff and Shannon Legro, who are amazing partners and who are uh, wonderful people have, have um, given me, given me the opportunity to, to put forward this book. Um, so that comes out July 2nd on the 85th anniversary of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan's disappearance. And that'll be on Amazon and anywhere you get your books, presumably. And, you know, that's all folks. That's everything for now. Well, next time in Kansas, I'll have to bring a copy of my book by for you to sign. Uh, I would be honored. Uh, and I, I think it might devalue the book having my signature on it, but I will put it on there for, <laughs> uh, for purposes of just having it done for you. So yes, I would be honored to do that. Well, thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. It's great talking to you. Yeah, man. Always a pleasure. Chris is a total badass. Go check out his work. Vanished podcast, Chasing Earhart, his book, his doc, his social media, all of it. You can find him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or go to his website, ChasingAirHeart.com. We'll have links to it all in the show notes for you. Thank you to Chris Williamson for the advice on escaping the vortex. Thank you to Russell Colbert for being a good friend to me and continuing to work with me even though I'm crazy. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening. This book is not for you.